It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Boston Art Podcast. Boston's premier art podcast. Where we talk art, culture, and philosophy. My name is Theodora Earthworms. And I am Brian Huntress. Welcome to the show. A new audio file has started. Yay! Sorry, I'm opening my apples. Oh, no, please open the apple slices. Okay. Uh, do you think these are going to be gross? I'm kind of suspicious of them. So as a connoisseur of fast food of all types, as we are, we eat a lot of fast food. Yeah. Not because we're like fucked up or something and we like <laughs> to eat poison, but because I'm fucked know, up. Like, fuck it. We just, we just like it. No, I'm, we I We go like to the to gym poison. and eat healthy and cook for ourselves. Just fuck sometimes we eat fast food. But as a fast food enthusiast, what, uh, what do you think of the Happy Meal? Um, a good snack? It was okay. It wasn't awesome, but it wasn't the worst. I needed like four chicken nuggets and something sweet, and that's what I got. And I got yeah. a little dragon. You got a little dragon guy? Yeah. These apples, though, taste like they've been dipped in uh, gas, like just car like, gas. Just like gasoline nuggets? Yeah. It's a little creepy. <sighs> Do you love having a podcast? I... Um, don't think about it. It's like a fact of life. You know how many people are like, do you regret your tattoos? And you're just like, I don't <laughs> feel any way about them. Yeah, like it that. is like that, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Do you um, like having a podcast? I do, yeah. It's like an obsession and something that I can't not think about and do all the time. I mean, I feel like that too. But... What you been up to lately? Uh, a lot, actually. Um... I have no idea where we are in the reported timeline of released episodes. Like, I don't know what There's our listeners... There's nothing on the queue. So, I this don't... This is the next thing going out. I don't know what I've talked about on the air, though. It's been kind of a while since we did a rambling episode. Yeah. Well, this but, isn't a rambling episode. I know, I know, I know. But, you know what I mean. Mm. Um, I started college again. Congratulations. I'm three weeks into my senior year. Art history. And psychology. And psychology. Dual concentration, baby. Um, so that kind of sucks ass, not going to lie, but it's kind of exciting to get it out of the way. And I'm very excited for um, all the things that I'll be able to do after I have it. Like make money and make other people feel bad for themselves about themselves. And Are like, you going to do that? Make people feel bad? Yeah, because they didn't get a college degree. You're going to like flex on them and hurt them emotionally? No. Yeah, me neither. Just honestly. you. I never. I don't have a college degree. How would I do that? No, that's what I mean. I'm going to do it to you. All. Oh, you're going to do it to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. I'll accept. Not when you're awake, though. I'm just going to whisper hurtful things to you in your ear, so like classic statements. Dreams. I've been having yeah. a lot of nightmares recently. It's because of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey. Wait, have want... you really? I have actually. Aww. Yeah. I don't know why. That sucks. The other day, I woke you up. This was like a few days ago. Um, I was getting ready to go to work, 
and I woke you up when I got out of bed and you just opened your eyes and then closed them again and said, they made me eat all the frosting and you went back to sleep. Yeah, that was a dream, not a nightmare. It was just a generic, like wonky, stupid dream. You looked upset. I was, I just had a huge plate with just like, like gobs of like liquid frosting that I was <laughs> eating with my hands. Ew, no cake or anything? And it, yeah, no cake, just a shitload of frosting. Who and made I you? was like, wanted to throw up. It was so terrible. It was was like, someone making you do it? That's what you said. I don't remember. I think Damn. so. It was like the color too that, uh, you know that one Pop-Tart that's purple and blue? Oh God. Like it's like a purple and blue swirl or something. You remember It that? looks like Sully from Monster Sink. Yeah, kind of actually. I don't remember what flavor that is, but it was that fr- frosting. Ugh. Yeah, it was a fucking awful dream. That sucks. So, I'm so sorry. Uh, so we have a we have gathered here today to discuss something specific. We have, and We've got I got another know written script. You kind of do, I guess. To preamble the script. Oh, I should say, as a for anybody listening that doesn't know, um, this episode content big 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 content warning. This episode will uh, discuss drug use. Um assault uh medical trauma suicide violence ab- like everything this has a, this is a horrible this is a where this is a, this is basically a true crime story that we're about to discuss today what if i wanted to opt out of this <laughs> you can't that trigger warning does not extend to you okay so you are just gonna have to fucking deal I'm with strapped it strapped in yeah i, I think i know what we're talking about today though because i think you left the script in our room one time yeah so it's funny like I didn't because read it though. I just saw the title and was like, "This is a script." This is this story is going to be. You're not allowed to read over my shoulder anymore. <laughs> this is going to be the tragedy and the many, many, many deaths of of Edie Sedgwick. It is Sedgwick. It's Sedgwick. Well, it seems like it's a lot of people pronounce it differently, but the most common pronunciation I found is Sedgwick. Okay. Of the famous uh, Sedgwick. Uh, foundation and family who are like still uh, we'll, we'll get into it we'll get into it okay cool cool, cool yeah cool. so we just to let you guys about... know uh, oh and to let you know yeah we did so this is a little bit of a part two it's kind of an expansion pack to mm-hmm. the Andy Warhol story yeah this is only a little there's like just for everyone that's sick of Andy Warhol this is just a little bit of Andy Warhol it's not a lot of it it's just a little sprinkle of I think in. people liked the Andy Warhol deep they, dive you know what's funny is people didn't I think some people liked the Cambodian genocide stolen artifacts episode, but people liked the Andy Warhol one a lot more. Which is really funny because I thought it was going to be the other way around. Me too. I think that it's just the simple fact that despite the Cambodian artifacts being a like factually more important subject Mm. and to me more interesting, unfortunately, it is it's just less sexy. That one was also Andy Warhol stars and sex and drugs and fun. It was kind of in the weeds too. Like, because I think that the thing that was cool about Andy Warhol is um, he's a very familiar face and name to like anybody, like not even if you're into art history, like everyone knows who Andy Warhol is or has seen the soup can or whatever. But that level of detail, like I didn't even know most of the stuff that we were talking about. I'm an art history major now. Right. Well, we're going to get into, so the funny part about Edie Sedgwick's story is that people often talk about the Hollywood starlet or like a famous woman from the you know yesteryear that 
you know, had so much potential and this and that. And then the Hollywood just fucked her over and chewed her up and spit her out. This kind of is in that genre, but this is more, she didn't get chewed up and spit out. She got chewed up and cannibalized. Okay. This, this, this woman will sounds awful at this. So this story will make you so angry. So before, you're going to feel, you're not going to feel good at the end of this. Basically, so Before we get into that, I do feel like I need to disclose that the window being open and me being a little cold is putting mm-hmm. me on edge. But I like, see, I'm actually, I was enjoying the breeze, but I'll, All I'll right. it up. Well, if I, you could leave it down for a bit, I guess, but if I flip out, it's that's closed. why. Okay. We can even turn the car on and just get the heat going a little bit. We could do that. Do you want to? Um, I'm good for right now. We could do okay. it soon though. Okay. I don't want the background noise to interfere. It won't. It'll be okay. But yeah, so for anybody that's interested in, you know, feminism and women's stories and women in art and entertainment, this story is um, satanic. Anyway. Horrible. Let's get into it. All right. (laughs) Okay. um, You know, I actually kind of think we should turn the car on because I I can't see the script. It's (laughs) nighttime. Wait, should we maybe move the car to under one of the streetlights? No, you can't it's okay. If we, if we lose a little too much gas, I'm worried about the battery, the car, the engine's on, but it's not, it's the engine and gas potentially being wasted, not electricity. What the fuck are you worried about? <laughs> are you worried that the battery's going to die because the car's on? I was, but now I realize I think that what I was thinking is when you have the lights on in the car. Yeah, on. no, that's why I turned the engine on so that oh, that wouldn't happen. Oh, okay. That's fine. <laughs> We, okay. I just live in fear. We don't fear. have to talk about that. <laughs> I, I get it. Okay, so the tragedy and many deaths of Edie Sedgwick. Edie was Many born, deaths, is that what you said? We'll get into it. That's kind of a metaphoric interpretation on my part. I assume. So, Edie was born in Santa Barbara, California, April 20th, 1943. So, a bit of a 420 birthday. She was a Taurus. <laughs> uh, her full name uh, was Edith Mintram Sedgwick, a proper... Uh, a proper uh, 1940s rich person name. Nice. Many will immediately recognize your last name as being from the immensely famous uh, and wealthy. Oh. Ooh, turn the oh, radio off. Wait, is your your Bluetooth? No, my Bluetooth right? isn't connected. Is it off though? Yeah. Okay. So we'll recognize her from the Sedgwick family, old money, such as names like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and such. The Sedgwick family is right up there with East Coast elite wealth of the Gilded Age. Mm. So, and she was born when? 44? 1943. 43. So, okay. So, right now that would make her in her late 70s. I think she'd be, she'd be like 80. A grandma. She'd be 80. Okay. Like many with wasp origins, uh, Edie's family traces all the way back to colonial times. Uh, her family lineage is like ridiculously well documented. Uh, and even with one of her like great, 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 whatever's was a signer of the declaration of independence. Holy shit. And the backbone of the Sedgwick wealth and and fortune started with early American settlers being involved in in the development and burgeoning economy of colonial America with their wealth, carrying them and their descendants all the way to the 20th century, Mm. all the way to the 21st century, really, because this family and foundation, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if the family still exists like there's just some living sedgwicks or if it's like the sedgwick foundation like their estate or something i don't understand exactly what the nature of this family's current wealth and fortune is but whatever they're they're kicking (sighs) uh, maybe 
So it's all very complicated. Uh, it's all uh, it's all very complicated understanding the exact source of the wealth and affluence of the Sedgwick family, because there are over a hundred notable names uh, in the family who had inherited and created mass amounts of wealth through land ownership, industry, and public in- influence and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But these are people who funded the founding of countless museums and libraries with members having their portraits painted by famous uh, artists such as Singleton Copley, John Singleton Copley. There's like, I think Edie Sedgwick's like grandmother was painted by him. Wow. Her great grandmother. So they were big patrons of the arts and oh, education. Yeah. yeah. And I think literally in Boston and New England, they literally built and funded a lot of buildings and museums and wow. libraries and shit. I don't know if they had anything to do with MFA Boston, but it's definitely possible. Uh, This wealth and power led all the way up to a man named Francis Mintram Sedgwick, born in 1904. He got married to a woman named Alice Delano DeForest. Uh, Francis had big dreams of becoming a railroad tycoon, uh, but apparently this did not work out to him because he was severely mentally ill. Uh, His doctor and all of his family and friends discouraged him and his wife from having children because of his mental health issues, but they did not listen. Uh, according to Edie, uh, Francis was a psychopath and was prone to sudden violent outbursts. Counseled by his psychologist again, Francis uh, decided to retire from the business world and become an artist, making uh, sculptures while also abusing, terrorizing, and traumatizing his wife and children. Wait. So this is this is Edie's father. Okay. So this That's is unfortunate. A, so this guy, yeah, unfortunately, this guy was a total, complete, like fucked in the head psychopath. Abuser. Yeah, with millions and millions and millions of dollars of inherited money. That's a bad recipe. Oh, yeah. So, determined to uh, isolate uh, his family from the ever uh, the never-ending tendrils of the East Coast elite Boston socialite world, uh, he uh, isolated his wife and children and moved them out to a cattle ranch in Santa Barbara, California. Oh, wow. There, he allegedly farmed cattle and also, uh, weirdly, discovered oil on the property, which inclu- uh, increased this guy's net worth uh, radically. So he was rich as fuck, went out there, bought a bunch of land, found oil on it, and became even richer. Hmm. Apparently, life on the ranch for Edie and her siblings was very weird. Were uh, they kids? Huh? They were kids? Yeah, I think. I don't know the exact number, but I think she had like five or six siblings. <laughs> like, there was a whole bunch of them. They were all close in age. Did they go to school? We're actually about to talk about that right now. Oh. They were partially homeschooled, actually. Huh. Uh, life on the ranch uh, was fucking uh, weird. The kids lived in their own separate cabins and they were left to their own devices almost all day every day. Slay. They played alone and wandered the uh, property alone. Uh, One of uh, Edie's brothers says, we were taught in a weird way. So when we got into the world, we didn't fit in anywhere and nobody could ever understand us. Hmm. It's a vibe. Oh, no, no, no. He said nobody could ever stand us. Oh, that's even more of a vibe. Everybody hated them because (laughs) they were weird. Oh, that sucks. So, Despite the massive affluence and privilege of Edie's early life, she did not make it into adulthood unscathed between beatings and other forms of abuse. Edie also says her father uh, inflicted sexual abuse on her as well. Mm. Um, Edie also mentions an incident where one of her own brothers even attempted to assault her. Uh, She once witnessed her father uh, cheating on her mother, and he actually... Uh, this is this is kind of dark. I feel bad. So the trigger warning. This is a, a big part of that. Uh, there was one traumatic event where she witnessed her father having an affair. And uh, this would begin a, a big pattern of things that would happen to her. But he drugged her. He beat her and then drugged her. 
and sedated her basically for days at a time. And then when she awoke, he tried to convince her that it didn't ever happen. Oh, my God. So this is the type of guy that the dad was. That's horrifying. So through all of this abuse and chaos, Edie uh, began to experiment with drugs. She developed an eating disorder. And her parents uh, treated her or tried to make her better by giving her sedatives and keeping her on bed rest. Mm. So that was the move was to just keep her inside, keep her in bed and give her fucking weird ass pills from the 50s and 60s. Keep her quiet, basically. Yeah, just get her the get her the fuck out of there. This is like kind of. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, after Edie's grandfather died, I don't know how he related to her or what she felt about him. Unfortunately, um, Edie was sent to board in a school in San Francisco but was quickly removed because of her eating disorder uh, and her Aww. mental health. It, uh, anyway, Edie was also experimenting with drugs while there. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, uh, this led up. Basically, she started getting into a bunch of trouble, got kicked out of school. Her condition worsened, her drug use worsened, and she was sent to a psychiatric facility in Connecticut. Hmm. East Coast. Yeah, so she's back on the East Coast. While in the hospital, her condition worsened and she became suicidal. She also developed a relationship with a Harvard student in the area. I don't know how that happened. Um, but uh, this happiness uh, turned to Ash as well because she got pregnant by accident. So she was a teenager at this point? Yeah, so this, she's, she's a high schooler. Hmm. So she's probably like 17 or something. And she's dating a guy from Harvard? She's dating a guy from Harvard. It's kind of like a girl interrupted situation, I think, where... I think she had some leave or like some way around, I don't know. And she was involved with Harvard people or something and ended up getting pregnant. Mm. So, and uh, she was given an abortion at the time. And I said given an abortion because it's not clear if she had any say in this abortion because she was a psychiatric patient. Oh, wow. (sighs) How are we doing so far? Is this like dark and weird? It's dark, but it's interesting. Mm. I didn't know any of this. Yeah, well, I don't so know very much it, about the thing, the thing that's interesting about this is that she's not famous, really. Yeah. Like she's not like she's. You would know who she was if you were particularly interested in a few different things, but on her own, she's not really well known. And we're going to get into that too. Mm. So that's actually a big part of this. Is the, there's a distinct reason for that, huh. or some reason supporting that. Anyway, after that, she attended Radcliffe College, where she uh, made a big impression on her fellow students. One classmate recalled that every Harvard boy fell in love with Edie and wanted to save her from herself. (laughs) Uh, She went there for a while before moving away to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she studied sculpture with her cousin, an artist named Lily Serenin, who I looked up, who uh, she has ended up having an art career on her own. That's cool. Boston artist of the 20th century. Uh, Here she partied hard while living in the bohemian social fringes of the Harvard student body in Cambridge. So she became this like kind of interesting 60s, I don't know, hippie acid head hanging out with uh, random people at Harvard. So is this weird? I feel like this is a weird script. No. Is this going well? Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's just, it's heavy. So I, I don't know. It's not bad though. Hmm. I think, are you feeling weird because it's heavy? Yeah, I feel weird. I feel like I'm like saying a bunch of fucked up shit. <laughs> I mean, it's Sorry. fucked up that this stuff happened, but... You're not being fucked up. Okay, I just feel bad. I feel bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay. Uh, Should I tap in? Should I read some of it to you? No, no, no. Okay. No, that would be weird. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You're the audience. Well, then read. Oh, okay. By 1964, <laughs> she moved. Uh, so this is kind of interesting because um, uh, but, so she's going to Radcliffe <laughs> College. She's hanging out with all of these like Harvard people and she's partying and shit. Uh, but 
college went horribly. She dropped out. She didn't enjoy it. And she, uh, in 1964, decided to move to New York City with an inheritance from her grandmother of $80,000 in her bank account. Wow. Which I looked it up is the equivalent today of having like $800,000 or like $770,000. So uh, Edie leaves college. She says, fuck all this. I'm away from my parents. I'm away from whatever. You know, I'm just, I'm on my own. I'm on the East Coast now. And I got 80,000 fucking dollars in my bank account. Moving to New York. Let's go to New York and fuck it up. So. Sounds like a good idea. Honestly, yeah, really. I would do the same. Yeah, why the fuck not? So she was in a new and rich landscape filled with opportunity, art, and beautiful chaos. But most of all, she had uh, a massive exposure to drugs, which she loved. Her main goal was to become a model and become famous. Nothing wrong with that. Many of us have similar dreams. Uh, After arriving, she attended a birthday party for the playwright Tennessee Williams, who we weirdly discussed on our uh, Origins of uh, gayness in P-Town. Oh, wow. So famous That's gay crazy. playwright, Tennessee Williams. Uh, you may be wondering, how does a young girl with aspirations of fame and stardom just pull up to a birthday party for a famous literary icon? The answer is generational wealth. Uh, Edie was born into a world of connections and privilege, and her name alone carried massive weight at the time. Uh, the stars aligned, uh, for better or worse, at this party, and uh, where she met the infamous uh, Andy Warhol, and oh, her wow. life changed forever. She just met him at a party. That's crazy. Yeah, apparently um, it wasn't by accident either because Edie wanted to become famous and she wanted to be a model and an artist and shit. And she had friends there in Connections that knew Tennessee Williams, which is why she was there. Yeah, and I she think was networking. She, she had a friend there that intentionally introduced her to Andy. Good friend. Yeah. Well, it depends on what happens next, I guess. Um. Maybe yeah, not. that's true. Um, this same year, another one of her, uh, unfortunately, so she, as she arrives in New York City and, you know, the stars are aligning and this and that, her family life is still haunting her from back home. That makes sense. So, yeah, this same year, another one of her brothers uh, suffered a new uh, a uh, nervous breakdown uh, while living in New York City. I don't know if she was around him at the time, but. Oh, he was also in New York. He was in New York City, and he had some kind of nervous breakdown because he suffered from mental illness as well. And they say he was speeding, like going like fucking 80 miles an hour through New York City streets on a motorcycle oh, God. when he crashed head on to a bus. And died? And, and died, yes. Oh. And nobody knows if it was a, a suicide or not. At the same time, uh, one of her brother, another one of her brothers at home uh, came, uh, came out as gay to their dad. And the dad being a mentally ill, you know, sadistic psychopath, uh, you know, kicked him out, beat the shit out of him probably, and sent him to the same psychiatric facility that Edie was in. Oh, wow. In Connecticut. And her brother committed suicide while in that hospital. Oh, my gosh. So, as, so despite, <coughs> excuse me, despite Edie having nothing but money and, op- and upward mobility, Mm. and that she had the right name. She had all the fucking money she could ever want and had crazy connections. She had a hard life. She had a really fucking bad life. Yeah, a hard life, and, you know, the death of siblings is unimaginable. It's absolutely fucking horrible in young, as a young person. I'm sure it's really difficult even as an elderly person, let alone, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, if I that's feel- hard... I can't imagine how hard that the other, you know, you know what I mean? I feel so bad for her brothers too. Like the one who was mentally ill, of course, but the one who was sent to a psychiatric facility, because it sounds like he could have left. Maybe. I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah, because that's the thing, too, is the state of mental health treatment in the 50s and 60s. Was, Dark. They were still doing lobotomies at that time. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're, like, doing bad stuff to to women and gay people. Yeah, that's uh, true. And black people, probably, and native people. And minorities alike were getting absolutely horribly treated in psychiatric facilities if they were even given care at all. That's awful. Because, you know, so shit was shit was bad. Shit was bad. Do you know what his name was? Unfortunately, I did not include the names of either of those two people. Mm, I'll look so, them up later. Sorry to, the, to those people. Rest in peace. Anywho. <laughs> what year are we in right now? Like we're, 50s? We're in like 1960s. 19, so we're in, we're in Silver Factory days. Remember from the Andy Warhol episode, Edie Sedgwick came onto the Silver Factory scene when it was in full swing. But how old is she? She's like 23 or 24. Right now? Yeah. She's like a young woman in her early 20s. Okay. So. As we learned from a previous episode, uh, Andy Warhol, I should probably call him Andy Warhol because he isn't the subject of this, so we won't call him Andy. Uh, Andy Warhol had ambitions, and there also might be people who are jumping into this episode that did not listen to that one. You haven't so listened should, to our whole discography? Yeah, so I should probably keep that in mind and give like real context instead of just referring back to that one. You're doing a good job. Anywho. Good job. Uh, Andy Warhol. If you didn't know, Andy Warhol, uh, actually, no. You know what? Listen to the other fucking episode if you want to know about him. <laughs> uh, had a massive ambitions of being a Hollywood director as well as maintaining infinite growth with his booming art career, mm. uh, a true capitalist and entrepreneur. Despite Andy's uh, unmatched clout and fame in the art world, he still felt that he needed a foot in the door in the world of old money and coastal elites mm. because Andy wasn't a wasp. Like even though he was like a white guy whose parents were Polish yeah. to us, we would consider that just a random white guy. But at the time, that immigrant stat, that first generation immigrant status as a white guy, was you know it kind of knocked him down a peg. Yeah. With like waspy people, I guess. I, don't, I mean, that's kind of a social dynamic that's a little bit lost right now, because right now a lot of that is more ascribed to race, mm. racism rather than like a kind of invisible like oh you're from Poland like you're not like a. Yeah. You're not a colonial origin white person. You're well, that Polish white person. That even like. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a little different when you get into like higher echelons of money and like generational wealth. Yeah, that's probably like true. If you're in social circles where everybody that's there, like their ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence <laughs> or came oh, over on yes. the Mayflower or something, like there probably is some kind of like weirdness around. My that. uncle Barnabas was on the Mayflower. Yeah, like, my what great, the hell? great, great fucking whatever. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a lot about this, you know, to give a little background, Andy Warhol was. Um, you know, a multi-fucking millionaire, one of the most famous on-fire artists of his time. But despite all that, he was deeply, deeply, deeply insecure and did not feel like he was, it was never enough for him. He needed yeah. more, 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 no matter what. Anyway, um, blah, 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 blah. Despite Andy's unmatched clout, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Yeah, so he felt like he needed a foot in the door with the, with the old money coastal elites. Plus, Andy was a gay drug addict and a Polish Catholic immigrant, as we just discussed. He didn't have the right pedigree or the right name. A guy like him with massive art world momentum pairing up with a rich girl bearing a name like Sedgwick could have been huge for them both. Mm. It would have been like a popular prank YouTuber getting funding and approval and endorsement from the Kennedy Foundation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like Andy wasn't a legend. Oh he was like a punk yeah. at the time, right? Like he was kind of like 
new and shitty and cool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> new and shitty yeah. and cool. So despite the fame and clout of, of the YouTuber, there's just access those guys will never have. Just no matter how famous or rich they get, if you're just some guy with a podcast, you're not getting in the fucking door. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, we're in he the Silver Trisha. Factory days. He was Trisha Paytas. He, yeah, he was like Trisha Paytas. Uh, Edie got uh, close <laughs> with Andy right off the bat. And uh, Andy began to uh, uh, making use of her immediately, adding her uh, shots of her into a movie that was already finished and being prepped for release and screening. But, you know, there was like this methamphetamine speed based kooky, crappy art. Uh, so he added her. You just fucking put her in. Nice. And, and just un- unscriptedly. Um, you know, so and for people that don't know, Andy's a uh, fuck. Actually, I'm going to stop saying that phrase because it gets me off script every single time. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm nervous. People know you're good. You're doing good. (laughs) Uh, so Andy Warhol's, uh, films were screened in legendary underground theaters across NYC. That's cool. Uh, such as the filmmakers cinema. Thank you. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Plus countless unnamed and uncredited alternative art spaces and spots like coffee houses, warehouses, clubs, and the like, the kind of vibe doesn't really exist today, but in new, but New York city at the time had an exploding DIY avant-garde art scene, uh, art film scene brewing and Edie rose directly to the top of it. Mm. Keep in mind, Edie was young, beautiful, and she was very, very, very fashionable. She wore her hair cropped short and wore eccentric, weird makeup for the time. And, uh, and her films with Andy, she was often paired with scantily dressed male co-stars, uh, with her often wearing underwear or some kind of lingerie. People came for the, uh, aesthetics and artistic plots and strange production, uh, for the avant-garde art, but they stayed for Edie's charisma and her looks. Uh, note, it is uh, also said that Edie's style echoes into the present day as she uh, uh, she is credited with being uh, the inventor of the miniskirt. Apparently. The inventor of the miniskirt? Yeah, like she popularized, she made the miniskirt. Wow. She was like that first, the first girl to do that. She was the face of the miniskirt. Anyway, cool. and apparently it's because she uh, often wore children's clothes and styled herself in wacky, mm. strange ways. She is a style icon. Like she's one of those names that if you're looking into fashion history, you see Edie Sedgwick. One hundred percent. She is. She's not the the first it girl I learned. I forget her name right now, but she was like a vaudeville flapper girl. Mm. Like the first the first woman to be described in pop culture as an it girl was from the twenties. Wow. And it is a. It, existed and permeated all the way into literally right now in TikTok culture. Mm. So it's interesting. It's a recent concept. Yeah. In a, in a sense, uh, the other factory stars of the Andy Warhol menagerie of odd people. Oh, fuck. What? I'm sorry. I'm just fucking this all up. You're doing a wonderful I'm job. So Relax. I'm trying. Do you need help? What's going on? No, hold on. 
Um, so the other factory stars in the Andy Warhol menagerie were a group of odd people from diverse backgrounds. Some were rebellious heiresses to great fortunes, just like Edie, mm. but the rest were working class people. Many of them were drag queens, trans people, criminals, artists, and hustlers. The place was filled uh, with an always changing group of bizarre and crazy characters with only one thing in common. They liked drugs. For those that don't know, Andy Warhol Silver Factory wasn't just a famous art studio. It was also a world-class drug den where you could get your hands on anything from dope, meth, speed, weed, barbiturates, LSD, mescaline, you name it, plus probably a massive list of drugs that don't even exist anymore. Yes. It was the 60s. The factory was a drug buffet filled with zany queer people and mentally ill rich people with uh, Andy Warhol lording over them all like a satanic circus ringleader. Uh, I know so many bad things came out of that scene, but it still sounds so it sick. Sounds so it sounds so fucking sick. cool. It sounds so fucking sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, God. dude. So compared to the factory regulars who we learned about, people like Ondine or like, anyway, uh, like, you know, there's, there's this crazy group of fucked up people. Uh, Edie was very, very different. This was a girl who grew up with everything. She was healthier than these people. She'd seen more of the world than these people. And she had accesses access to resource that none of these people ever had. Both her parents were artists uh, born into immense wealth. And she even went to college. Uh, I don't say this to disparage Edie, but to, to, I say this to highlight her confidence and experience compared, <clears throat> compared to a group of starving artists who had never left New York city in their lives and a bunch of rich blowhards working in corporate offices across the city. Edie was world-class experienced. And when it came to confidence and, and, and charisma, she was like a wolf in a, in a hen house. Mm. So like she was, she was the fucking center of the room. Yeah. Like she was smarter than everybody. She knew more and she had a fuckload of money. Mm -hmm. And you got to think too, New York is like this, like cosmopolitan, amazing place of rich culture, like all kinds of stuff now. But, at the time, it was like a working class town yeah. of like just townies and immigrants and stuff. So I don't know that it had that like same like now when you think of New York City, it's like similar to thinking of L.A. where you're thinking it's like tons of rich people and it's like very cosmopolitan and interesting, like worldly, mm. I guess. But I don't think it was that way in the 60s. Interesting. Thoughts? I don't know. Anyway, me neither. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, because of all that, Andy Warhol magnetized to her. The two became uh, close and began uh, to uh, – Edie began to emulate Warhol, going as far as to dye her hair silver to match his. War oh. Uh, though I think – anyway, I'll, I'll keep going. Warhol, was she blonde before that? Uh, no, she had dark brown hair. Oh, wow. I she didn't know She had dark that. brown hair but was famous for – her the famous like ultra famous photos of her she has like bleached white hair yeah and black black eyes um because people compare her aesthetically to twiggy yeah who they were contemporaries as well mm. she's got a there's a little wrinkle in here that involves her as well but um blah 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 i'm so fucking anxious why do why we are you do anxious? this i'm just stressed out don't be stressed I just out i feel like i'm doing a bad job you're doing a good job okay there's like a lot of people that like I used to create the script that like did like um, unbelievable, amazing coverage mm -hmm. of her story. But surprisingly, there's like very little to talk about. No information and people who have reported on this. Yeah. We're probably one of like 50 fucking pieces of con like contemporary content 
Well, that's pretty that cool. Can, anyway, that's if completely you, not true, probably. But if you are feeling anxious, just slow down and ask me questions so I can jump in too. You don't oh, to feel free to interrupt me. Don't. I'm not going to get upset if you interrupt me. Well, I'm just listening to your storytelling right now. But okay, but I do your have commentary thoughts. is makes it better. If it's just me reading, it would suck. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> You're doing a great job, and it doesn't suck. I love you. I love you too. <sighs> okay. So she dyed her fucking hair silver and cut it all off and was looking like a badass. Cool. Uh, Warhol put her in more and more and more films and her legend grew. Uh, This was no small time art scene crap. Her fame went as far as being uh, named girl of the year in 1965 by Vanity Fair. So she's fucking on the cover of Vanity Fair. I don't know exactly how big the magazine was at the time, but it was still a big deal. So, So put a pin in there. Remember, she's on the cover of a fucking magazine. Yeah. You know, for these wacky art films and the parties and the socialitism, you know. She's famous. E- yeah. Edie was an icon and she credited Andy Warhol with that success, uh, as many do actually. Some say Edie saw uh, him, him as sort of a father figure. And I can see why Edie never had really a real loving father and probably got abuse from many of the men in her life. All she wanted was fame and independence. Meeting Andy was like a, a dream for her, he was also gay, so he wasn't just trying to, to be with her or date her or something. And he gave her celebrity status and treatment, uh, c- celebrity status and treatment in his circle and went crazy trying to make her famous because that's what he did. And he was in his 40s at this point, right? I think he, yeah, he, well, he's in his late he was, 30s, late 30s, but basically, yeah. Well, wasn't he like 47 when he was shot? No, he was an older man when he got shot. I think he might have been in his 50s or 60s. What? He didn't get shot until like eight, 1987. Oh, and this is 1960, the 1960s. Damn, really? Yeah, he was. Yeah, we. Yeah, he he was fucking. He probably like. Wow. Yeah, I mean, think of the fo- the celebrities he photographed in his time. He had photos of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Madonna. It's true. Many many random, uh, more contemporary people than the the 1960s icons. Anyway, so I just say like. Even though these two have a reputation of having an absolutely chaotic relationship, you got to think this was fucking perfect for her because Edie, as we've we've discussed, was known everywhere she went as being a broken girl that everybody wanted to date. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to walk into this fucking crazy kingdom of fucked up gay people and Andy Warhol and like, and she's like just the fucking the queen of them all for a brief period. Yeah. This was awesome. This was the best case scenario at the time. Well, not really, but. Yeah. Anyway, so many believe uh, that Andy used Edie not just as a star, but as his own doppelganger and uh, self-portrait muse. Mm. Uh, Edie was sexy and thin and sported the same weird white hair. She wore beautiful makeup and men would fall over themselves trying to get with her. Andy, a warlock of fame and reputation, used her as a proxy and vicarious puppet for his own pursuits of fame and stardom. She was Marilyn and Liz Taylor and Jackie Kennedy, and she looked like Andy. Andy's relationship and collaborations with Edie were an extension of his art, and they stopped there, and and, and, and it really stopped there. It wasn't, like, the thing is, like, Edie saw this as a collaboration between them. Yeah. Like, she's doing shit and doing her thing, and Andy's filming it and doing his thing. He saw her as a model. Basically. He was a, he was kind of fucked up. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was a twisted guy. And if you want more context on this, dear listener, go listen to that episode. But Andy, Edie was an avatar yeah. for him. And she didn't know that. Like he was. Aww. So 
And despite that, she's benefiting it from it in a way. But like we discussed, everybody who brushed with uh, with Andy or did things with him would often end up feeling used mm. and, and put out. So. Yeah, it sounds like she was reading into it in an emotional way that he wasn't. Right. Like, she thought they were fucking dogs. Like, they were friends. Yeah. They were close. But they didn't ever get close. Which is hard because you have to imagine the emotional state that she was in at this point. Like, she'd experienced so much abuse and loss already yeah. in her early 20s that she would be vulnerable to a relationship like that. That's true. Especially from a guy that's like, you know, I mean, there's definitely a big difference between your early 20s and someone who's 37. Yeah. I forget how old he was, but I think he was like 36 or something. <sighs> Especially with, I know that she was wealthy and everything, but he had that artistic fame. Like he had the thing that she didn't have. Yeah. And it was a sexist time as well. Like yeah. it was also a time period characterized by the cha- uh, 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 disproportionate championing of, of men in these fields and the kind of, and forgetting about and fucking over the women in these fields. Yeah. Such as contemporary of Andy Warhol, Kusama. Who we need to do a script about too. Yeah, that's that's on that's that's consider it in the queue. <laughs> Not because I wrote it, but because we're gonna. I was planning on writing it. I haven't yet. Feel free. I have had homework. I haven't had a chance. I will you can delegate it to me or you can write it. Anyway. I wanna write it. Sure. Um <laughs> uh, loved ones of, of Edie say that the Warhol films featuring Edie were not his creative genius or good writing. They were Edie just being Edie. She loved people and she loved talking. She liked being the center of attention. Her friends and family say the movies just show who she actually was. Andy was just filming it. Because mm. you got to remember the Andy Warhol films weren't these like tight shot, like nice, like highly scripted things. They were like mostly improvised, just wacky, coke-fueled art films. Yeah. And Edie would get in there and talk and be animated and say shit and you know, she was like very, she was charismatic and loved ones of her, uh, say that that's who she wasn't acting. Yeah. That's just, that was her vibe. Uh, one of Andy, uh, one of Edie's most iconic moments with Andy Warhol was when she appeared on a TV talk show of the day, uh, called the Merv Griffin show, a kind of lost talk, like the exact same setup as like Jimmy Kimmel, like a fucking desk and a co-host. And Isn't a, that the show we were talking to Walter about? I asked Walter about it, if he knew about the show and he hadn't heard of it. But like we discussed with him, this is not on an episode or anything. But during this time period, there was a lot of cable talk shows mm. that were starting in the 60s and went all the way through until, you know, it was when local cable access meant something more than it does right now. Like people, like there was no streaming or the hundreds of channels. It was just channel fucking two local or something. So there was a lot of like random talk shows with local people on them and panels of local New Yorkers. Anyway. Um, yeah. So yeah, Edie appeared on one of these with Andy Warhol and because of his fame and blah, 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 people were probably watching. Uh, they did this like hilarious shtick. Uh, where they were pranked, they pranked the host and were kind of fucking with him. Uh, the guy would ask Andy a question, but Andy wouldn't speak more than like a whispered, silent little yes or no. But instead, he would whisper all of his answers to Edie, and then Edie would translate to the host. And because Andy was the whole pull and the reason that they were on the show, the host really, really wanted to ask him about his art and this and that, but he wouldn't talk to him <laughs> and had Edie talk to him, which was funny. But, it, you know, it was like, kind of weird. <laughs> it was it was just a, they were just fucking with the guy. Yeah. Because they didn't take it seriously. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, blah, 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 blah. You would whisper the answers. Edie uh, shine during this, answering all of the questions in a funny and exciting way, making the host laugh and impressing everyone with her charm. This interview is also said to be where the word superstar first enters the general lexicon spoken first on TV by Edie herself. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Because Andy is said to have coined the, the term. He made up the, the idea. Yeah, he made up the idea of a superstar. But apparently people say that Edie was the first person to say it on TV. Wow. Kind of odd, huh? Mm. It's like kind of kind of weirdly poetic. Yeah. Really. What uh, was the context? Do you know? I think she was referring to Andy as a superstar or talking about the superstars that he was filming and working with mm. and photographing. Yeah. I forget exactly, but it's widely available. Like you could look it up on YouTube. It's one of the only like long format interviews with Edie, I think. That's cool. Even though it was about Andy, I think it's one of the only like long videos where it's like someone filming and talking to her in high quality. That's actually kind of sad that it wasn't about her. It wasn't. Yeah, it is sad. It really is. Mm. Uh, Though the Warhol films were never commercially successful, the mainstream and local media did stories on the factory scene often and in turn would do stories on Edie. This increased her popularity as she continued to shoot with Andy. Even today, her film portfolio is not completely understood as she starred in so many underground films while uh, the producers of such, like Andy, would cut the films into separate stories, publishing them as entirely new movies sometimes, so it gets confusing. She would like film movies with these people and then Andy or someone would like also like cut it into new movies. That is confusing. Like it was just kind of like kind of weird and stupid. Yeah. You got it, it makes no sense because it makes no sense. It's interesting because it sounds so um ridiculous that he wouldn't have considered her a collaborator because it sounds like what she's bringing to the table was more substantial than what he was as far as the films go. And he thought that too, but all of the money and the credit was his. And he was just I don't know. Like Andy Warhol is just an he's he's an enigma. It's a, a question asked by many that we did a whole three and a half hours on. Mm. Was he a total piece of shit or some kind of philosopher? Good question. (laughs) It's a good question. Uh, This was all great and exciting for Edie until it wasn't. Uh, For one reason or another, Edie soured on her friendship with Andy and also complained about the lack of pay. Andy may not have made much off of his movies, but he certainly made more than the stars uh, who would often put in hours of work, uh, acting, writing, dressing, and performing for nothing but drugs and a place to crash. Also, Edie believed that Andy's films made her look like a fool. Uh, So that was another uh, bad twist in this, is that Edie started to fear that she wasn't famous for the right reasons, that she was kind of a a joke. 
Aww. a popular joke, you know? Was there truth to that? I don't think so. I think that Edie's initial allure was that she was beautiful and new and rich. Like she was a, a, a gorgeous rich girl hanging out with a bunch of degenerates. Yeah. So that was like exciting. But then, I don't know, like then she was like just, she was a popular girl in, in the factory scene. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen clips of Andy Warhol's films. I once watched a part of one in a museum. They're not, they're, they're really hard to watch. Yeah. Even the ones that feature Edie Sedgwick are not easy watches because they're avant-garde and they're filmed really horribly. Like the audio quality is terrible. The camera quality is terrible. The writing's terrible. In what way did she think she was being portrayed as a fool? Like, did she feel like she was being made to look stupid or did she feel like she was being sexualized or like, I, I didn't ever find, I didn't find any comments of her. That's that indicated that she felt like she was being improperly sexualized. But she, I think that she felt like she was a serious actor and an artist, but she was in these joke movies that were only being screened in like warehouses. Yeah. And Andy didn't take himself seriously. He didn't take any of the stars seriously. And they were like, do you know, um, if you know anything about Howard Stern, you'll know that one of Howard Stern's biggest shticks on his show is that he has characters. Yeah. He has like wacky, weird people that come on his show. They, the fan, the fandom of Howard Stern calls those people the whack pack, hmm. which is kind of like a boomer, like a, we, it's like a, a, a pack of wackos essentially yeah. is what it means, you know, which feature on Howard Stern show features. He once interviewed an active serial killer. He's interviewed people. It was like on the phone anonymous. He's interviewed people that are intellectually disabled and it was like a, a butt of a joke. Like, like Howard Stern's like kind of a controversial guy. But I think what ended up happening is that Andy Warhol stars and Edie felt like they were a whack pack probably. Yeah, there you know just wasn't I mean? like a lot of seriousness or respect. Yeah, like even if people were watching, they were still just stupid characters. I don't know. That's how I would feel honestly if I was one of these people probably. Mm. So uh, during this time... Uh, Edie uh, also became involved in the entourage and crew of none other than Bob Dylan. And she fell madly in love with uh, Bob Dylan himself. Uh, Dylan going as far as writing multiple songs. Okay. Actually, I should say before we even go on on this road. From here on out, pretty much, in Edie Sedgwick's story, almost everything that we're going to say is highly legally contested by the people in the story. People have sued over her story. People allege all of this is bullshit and lies and slander and say that she's a fucking liar and a delusional psychopath. And all of this is now alleged. So good to know. I'm not saying that because like, oh, you better you can't believe anything Edie Sedgwick says. I'm saying that because you should probably believe every like I I think (laughs) all of those lawsuits happened because all of this is probably fucking true. Yeah. So. Uh, it said, this is according to Edie's story at the time, personal recordings that she made in her family and friends. So okay. Edie was madly in love with Bob Dylan. Uh, and it's rumored and highly contested by Dylan that songs were written about her, such as leopard skin pillbox hat, which is a type of hat that she was known to wear. And the song distinctly, the lyrics read as if they're about her, uh, mm-hmm. a song called just like a woman and the timeless hit like a rolling stone. Wow. Are all uh, said to be written about Edie. Uh, Rolling Stone, like a Rolling Stone, is uh, believed to be written about Edie leaving the factory scene and how lost and desperate she was at the time Hmm. after leaving, you know. That's crazy. 
which is sad. And it gives a whole new meaning to those songs. Yeah. I mean, well, I never knew the song Leopard Pillbox had. And the song Just Like a Woman is kind of like a chauvinistic, dumb love song. Mm. It's like this whole story gave me a very, very, very different view on Bob Dylan. Mm. Because we listen to Bob Dylan as if he's this like black and white photos, civil rights era folk singer. Yeah. But he was like more, he was less like Phil Oaks and more like Jesse Lacey from Brand New. Like he was writing songs about troubled girls that he felt like were bad girls and they were so stupid and, and materialistic and surface level. And Hmm. like, you're just a shallow hot girl and all you want is money. Like that's like kind of like the angle that these songs had. Interesting. Like he had a lot of hits that became protest songs and, you know, song of the generation of the civil rights movement and the hippie movement. But he also wrote a lot of songs that were just like chauvinistic, like douchebag songs that easily could have just been switched out over pop punk rips. I've actually never really looked that hard at the lyrics of Bob Dylan's song. I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, Tambourine Man, Times Are a Changin', Like a Rolling Stone. Like these songs like don't sound like they just sound like kind of esoteric and Mm. poetic and like they're about like drugs and the streets. Like they're like cool, like subterranean homesick blues is an iconic Bob Dylan song. That's also viral on TikTok all the time, Mm. which is like people do Bob Dylan fits and subterranean homesick blues is playing. And that song's about like being like a no good, like street guy doing drugs in the sixties in New York. Yeah. Cool guy song, whatever. But, like, Bob Dylan, like, I mean, when you look into some of his B-sides that are all love songs that are alleged to be about a woman who is, like, publicly abused and humiliated and treated like shit, uh, uh, allegedly by him. Mm. Like, it's kind of not, they don't really sound as cool anymore. I'm getting ahead of myself. Did that happen? So, we'll get into that right now. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. So, um, uh... Anyway, yeah, so Bob, so Edie Sedwick is rolling with Bob Dylan and his crew. Um, and Edie is leaving the factory scene. Uh, Bob Dylan and his right-hand man, uh, a guy named Bob Newworth. So two Bobs <laughs> uh, here. Bob Newworth was also a folk singer at the time and close friend of Bob Dylan, who wrote a bunch of songs that sounded just like Bob Dylan and everyone else at the time. Kind of unremarkable, acoustic, 60s folk. <laughs> um Bob Dylan and Bob Newworth advocated for Edie and were convincing her that she should fucking stop fucking with these weirdos at the factory and she should go do her own thing and find her own career. Because they had beef, right? Yeah, I think that, like, Bob Dylan at the time had more of, like, a beatnik. Like, he, think of, if you want to know what his reputation was at the time, look to Jackson Pollock. Okay. Like he was like a masculine philosophical badass. Yeah. Like he was a cool guy. Like he wasn't like a sensitive mm. guitar guy. He was like a yeah, like a no nonsense smart guy. Yeah. He was kind of like a lip from Shameless character. Sure. Yeah. That's not not a bad comparison. And and Andy Warhol was like a gay dude that was wore wigs and hung out with trans people. Yeah. So someone like Bob Dylan probably like thought he was like a fucking loser. You know, that makes sense. Probably, you know, I, that's a beef as old as time. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, totally. Right. Can you see it? Yeah, <laughs> it totally makes sense. So the Bob, straight artists and the queer artists. Yeah. So they didn't like each other. They had like they they had like two camps because all famous rich people seem to have a camp. Yeah. I don't really know why that is, but they all have like 20 people that would all die for them that they hang out with daily. It's probably the money. It's probably the money, dude. You're right. 
the money and the clout. As and a, Bob as Dylan was like, how old was he at this point? In his 20s also? No, he was probably, honestly, I don't know. But I'm I'm guessing by the sound of the story and everything I know about Bob Dylan, I'd say he's in his mid-30s at this time. But isn't he in his 70s now? No, he's probably like fucking 87. Bob Dylan? Do you know? I'll, Is I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. You're recording, so I'll look it up on okay. my phone. Let's fact check Bob Dylan's age. I just feel like that's important context. All right. So right look now. Look up his uh, sign, too. <laughs> Bob Dylan's Everybody age. likes the Solanus uh, sign That's sign true. Thing. Oh, Bob Dylan is currently 82. He's 82. Yeah, which means that in 1964, uh, so maybe he wasn't his 20s. So in, 19, in 1964 minus 1941. Okay, so Bob Dylan's 23 or 24. And when okay. Edie Sedgwick arrives in New York City. So by this time, by the time Edie's leaving the silver factory, that's probably going to be 65 or 66. Or maybe even less. So, so they're okay. probably about the same age. All right, fine. So Bob Dylan's a young guy in this story. Um, let me find my place again. Sorry, I was just going to say that's like Bob a legal Dylan. archetype. Yeah, early twenties. Like, like also Bob Dylan's guitar boy. Yeah, and he's got money falling out of his fucking ears. And, exactly, and he's got nut, people sucking his fucking dick all day. He's Bob fucking Dylan. He's Bob Dylan. Yeah. And and Bob Dylan right now was Bob Dylan then. Yeah. Similar level of, of legendary reputa- reputation. So, um, uh, back to the story. They were encouraging her to leave the silver factory and do her own thing. Um, uh, Edie and Andy had dinner with friends uh, one night uh, towards the end of the fall of Rome, so to speak. Edie cried and demanded that Andy stop showing their movies because she felt like they made her look terrible. Uh, Andy probably said some stupid, insulting shit, and then Edie left crying. There's no documented uh, suggestion of what Andy said, but the interaction went horrible. Uh, and this is actually according to Bob Dylan himself. That was Bob Dylan's account of that conversation. That actually really sucks because, I mean, yeah. obviously he said no. Yeah, he was probably like, get over it, you fucking, I don't know. Like, we or, already released the film. Or he no. was probably like, I don't know. You look great. You know, he just said some fucking dumb thing. Was that a Bob Dylan impression? That's or? I tried to do an Andy Warhol thing, but I accidentally did a Bob Dylan <laughs> So what would Andy... Andy would have been like, No, Edie, you sound... No, you sound awesome. I don't know. Awesome! He had like a weird, wispy, whiny voice. Yeah. Like, Rupert, do you have any money? Like, almost like a gay transatlantic bot. <laughs> While Bob Dylan had like a... I don't even know how to describe Bob Dylan's accent. What the fuck is his accent? I have no idea. Where's it from? I think he's from Oklahoma. We're putting too much time on Bob Dylan right now. Okay, I'm going to just find out where he's from and then we'll move on. The boyfriends are eclipsing the plot right now. I'm not loving The boyfriends that. are eclipsing the plot. Don't love that. He was born in Minnesota. Okay, fuck Irrelevant. him. Irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Edie left crying. Uh, also, it was during this time... Edie's sister claims that Edie became pregnant with Bob Dylan's child. Holy shit. Uh, and it is said, uh, this is another thing that's has had a lawsuit fought over it, but it's said that uh, Dylan and doctors uh, forced Edie to get an abortion. Wow. Uh, devastated as she apparently wanted to keep this child, Edie uh, crestfallen and traumatized, I'm sure. That's awful. It's the second time. Yeah, we're going to touch on that again in a second. During this time, Dylan and his friends convinced Edie to uh, sign on as a uh, as talent 
uh, to a man named Albert Grossman, who was Bob Dylan's manager. Uh, Edie thought Dylan and his team would greatly help her career, and uh, they would uh, even go on to star in movies together. So Edie is in love with Bob Dylan. She signed on with his manager. It's going great. Uh, She was sadly mistaken, as Bob secretly during this time, famously uh, so, married another girl uh, that he was seeing on the side. Uh, a woman named Sarah uh, Loundness or something like that. This was a famous thing because it was Bob Dylan getting married yeah. at the height of his fame. And everyone was like, oh, shit, he's married. So he was dating Edie and she was part of the crew and hung out with everybody. And then, surprise, I'm married. Jesus. So massively fucked her over. Uh, Edie found out about this betrayal actually from Andy himself. Uh, associates of the two, including a film producer and assistant of Warhol, Paul Morrissey, say... Uh, said that Dylan never had any plans of helping Edie or starring in any movie, but he did. He said all that just to keep using her. Uh, to this day, Bob Dylan denies ever having any kind of romantic relationship with Edie, despite multiple claims from known associates of the two and multiple family members of Edie claiming to have knowledge of the forced abortion at the time it happened. Wow. So a lot of people say that it fucking happened, and Bob Dylan sued a bunch of people to make sure that nobody said that anymore. That's crazy. So... I mean, did it happen? I don't know. Did it? Not, I don't. You know. I mean, I. We'll probably find out when Bob know. Dylan dies. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, we will actually, because as yeah, we'll I, I suppose we will. Stay tuned. But we might not actually, unfortunately, and there's a very specific reason for that okay. that we'll find out at the end. Oh. Which is kind of devastating. A little bit of foreshadowing. Uh, during this time, Edie developed a ferocious uh, addiction. Oh yes, you have a question. I want to know what her chart is. Her chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might we can maybe add that on postscript, but I think that might be a little bit hard to find all that info on the fly you don't know her birthday we have her birthday it's april 20th 1943 google that no no no. taurus you said she's a taurus oh yeah she's a taurus oh. i thought you meant like her birth time and big 10 shit we don't have three we, I, you posted your big 10 on your story no i posted my big six on my story but that's not oh. really well i knew it was big three but i thought maybe big 10 was something i hadn't heard of yet <laughs> it just keeps getting bigger Shut up! <laughs> um uh okay let's keep going okay do you have one more question i have an issue what is it? I kind of have to pee. You have to pee? Kind of. Uh, Do we have time? Oh, wait. We don't have that many pages left. Do, oh. No, this is a this is a thinner script. This is not nearly as long as the Andy Warhol script. Okay. Uh, maybe I can manage. Let me know, and we'll pause and find a bathroom. Okay. That 100%. might need to happen kind of soon, but I'll just like okay. sit for now. Uh, okay. So as we were saying, oops, drop my mic. Uh, Edie developed a ferocious addiction to intravenous heroin. This has moved on beyond booze and speed and various other 1960s pills and she's shooting real dope now poor Edie. yeah her favorite thing to do was shoot heroin into one arm while simultaneously shooting speed into the other arm uh assumedly with the help of a friend this put her out of the movies and she lost all of uh, pretty much all of her opportunities at the time because her drug use got fucking gnarly uh shit got so fucked up that people uh started distancing themselves from her and then after the abortion, uh, doctors committed her to a mental hospital once again. Oh, wow. So, so, yeah. So, she ditched Andy Warhol, said, fuck all you guys. I'm doing my own thing. Said, all right, I'm going to roll with the Bob Dylan crowd. Uh, signed on to some fucking guy's talent agency and got, you know, fucked over by Bob Dylan. Out on her ass shooting heroin. No one wants to work with her anymore. And now she's back at a mental hospital. So, she's doing better with Warhol. She kind of was. Honestly, I mean, he was probably treating, uh, mistreating her and being a dick, but she might have been better off with him, honestly. You know what's sad about this, too? There's just like a small thing that I wanted to notice is that um, she clearly 
had a support system because she had a sister who she talked to enough for her to have known about personal relationship issues. Oh, you mean the family members? Yeah. So we said, yeah, that's, I mean, she was, so that's the thing is she was definitely estranged from her father to some degree. And I didn't, I couldn't find any concrete information on her relationship with her mother, but she was definitely in connection with her siblings. Mm. So, because they know they're like, they're the only people who have ever spoken out for her are her siblings. Wow. And some secondhand accounts of people from Andy Warhol's, uh, you know, story that had, that made comments about her life and whatever. And we'll get into that stuff too. But, but yeah, there was really not, there's really not many people going to bat for E.D. Sedgwick even That's today. Sad. Besides, you know, some really like hardcore fashion history people that, yeah, that just know their shit. So like you guys, dear listeners, <laughs> now, I feel for her and her siblings. It sounds like they went through a lot together. I think so. Uh, so, uh, by 1965, she got out, uh, again, Oh, wait. Oh, so by now. So another thing, too, is because her story isn't like super well documented, it's a little tough to get the timeline. Mm. So I don't know if this is before or after the mental hospital situation. But during this, uh, she was dating, uh, you know, kind of on and off dating Bob Dylan. He got married and she was also dating Bobby Newworth, the you know, the Bob Dylan ripoff guy. <laughs> and some people close to them say it was like Bob Dylan was pimping her out. Even Edie said she felt like a sex slave to Bob. Uh, I could make love for 48 hours without getting tired, but the moment he left me alone, I felt so empty and lost that I would start popping pills. Oh. So she was just kind of being, I mean, I, I've, this is, I feel terrible saying this, but it was like she was being passed around by the, these two assholes. Yeah. You know, I, I felt like I felt shitty coming off of my tongue, but it was character just to characterize the situation better, but. In 1966, Edie filmed her last movie with Andy Warhol. It was a retelling of the life of Mexican star Lupe Velez, uh, who it said this is controversial information as well. Another star with a tragic end, uh, Lupe Velez. Uh, it's believed that she committed suicide by overdosing on barbiturates at the end of her life. And they were filming a kind of DIY biopic uh, with uh, Edie starring in it. Mm. And uh, Andy famously, uh, another one of Andy's famous uh, heinous comments, uh, he said, uh, do you think Edie will let us film her committing suicide? Uh, he was joking about Edie being the star of the film and wanted to film her killing herself. Wow. Because it was a movie about a woman who allegedly killed herself. But a lot of people believe that woman didn't, and that was a suspicious situation. But that's obviously a story for a completely different time. Anywho. Uh, the same year, she was considered for uh, a cover of Vogue magazine. So things were still looking good for her despite this whole shit. Uh, but due to the tabloid articles and rumors about her drug use, the magazine cut ties with the blooming star, replacing her cover with the now iconic English model Twiggy. So that's the only mention of Twiggy. That's what I was talking about earlier. <laughs> that's, that's, <a> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, she continued to audition for movies and plays in the city, but no one would take her. Uh, she went home for Christmas that year to California, and her family said she was being creepy, strange, and off-putting. Uh, she is said to have been erratic and constantly interrupting people, and would at times burst out singing without warning. Hmm. So things were not looking good. Her family's concerned. Uh, they said she was being creepy. They did. Are those your words? They're my words. <laughs> she was being creepy. She was being creepy. She was being creepy. She was like <laughs> eating the tails of mice. Ew. And I don't know. 
That's not hurting true. the family pets with. Stop with, it! I'm sorry. I make. Don't just up. say shit. Sorry, I'm saying shit. <laughs> uh, by 1967, as more uh, people cut ties with Edie, uh, even the uh, shitty Bob Newworth guy left Edie behind. Mm. Uh, Edie was a mess. She became hospitalized after this while trying to film an autobiographical film. Uh, that was a bad sentence. She was trying to make an autobiographical film of herself in her apartment at the Chelsea hotel. And during some type of creative scene, she accidentally set her room on fire. She was at the Chelsea hotel. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So the Chelsea hotel is kind of cool too. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit, but isn't that the same time period that Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe were living in the Chelsea hotel? Yeah, probably. That's actually so funny. Yeah. The Chelsea hotel is a, is a historic building now. And I think that it's like some ex- insanely expensive place to live like if you're a millionaire you can get an apartment there or something for sure they probably have a dumb gallery in their lobby or some shit yeah at the time (laughs) at the time it was basically a heroin den and everybody like lou reed lived there bob dylan probably had a fucking room there valerie solanis lived in the chelsea hotel as well Mm. at the time that she well she shot andy warhol after being evicted i think from the chelsea hotel damn that sucks yeah so it's a pretty famous place but so Edie sets her room on fire. Uh, so she's off on her own making new stuff. And keep this autobiographical film in your mind. That's going to become important in a little bit. Uh, Wait, and, she sets her room on fire? Did you? Oh, yeah, I mentioned that. So she accidentally set her room on fire and then became hospitalized and put in a mental hospital. Oh, okay. She was trying to like, I don't know exactly what, but she was like trying to film something cool with fire. It happens. And burned her room. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so she's hospitalized in 1970. Who among us? And this is where shit starts to get a little bit hairy, if it wasn't already. She gets let out into some kind of conservatorship situation Ooh. Uh, in the care of a doctor, two nurses uh, who were live-in people, and uh, a man that she became. So, And then she became, she was living with a doctor and nurses in the home of a filmmaker named John Palmer and his wife, Janet Palmer who were Hollywood movie producers of the time, rich people, uh, determined to finish her autobiographical film. She took up shooting with this crew uh, in Arcadia and Santa Barbara, these beautiful places in California. To the surprise of many, Edie actually finished this movie, and it was released in 1972. Wow. And it was just her story about everything that happened to her in her own words. And it was made largely, it was kind of an avant-garde movie, and it was made largely with audio recordings that she they gave her a tape recorder and had her tell her story to the tape recorder just on her own time which she did i don't know where those recordings were i found some examples of them but i don't think they're all just publicly available online what a gem of a film to have been finished yeah we're lucky that we have that it's online so i'm sure you could probably watch it i didn't watch it unfortunately but maybe we could watch it yeah just her perspective. Yeah. And then she lived, after making the movie, lived happily ever after and became rich and independent. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not true. Um, by, <laughs> that was a lie. Uh, by 19. 19- oh, yeah. So, yeah. So she makes a movie, blah, blah, blah. Uh, during this time, she is arrested in her hometown for drug possession uh, while driving around with heroin or something. She's busted by the local cops. That sucks. And then she gets put into a local psychiatric facility in 1971. To everyone's surprise, uh, Edie actually thrived in treatment this time That's and good. formed a romantic relationship with a fellow patient named Ooh. Michael Post. So not so good. <laughs> so she's doing good. Like she's sober and she's healthy. At this time too, iconically, completely changed her look. She grew 
really, really long brown hair mm. and was doing a natural kind of 70s look, totally different than her iconic vibes. Classic healing. Yeah, so she's healing. She's got her natural hair color back. She's in treatment. But, you know, she's dating this guy who's a fellow patient. And that's like, not always. The he's best not even an artist or anything. He's just a regular guy that's just another mental patient. Nice. Uh, but Edie got sober. She grew her hair out and eventually married Michael after they both were discharged from treatment. Oh. So, though happy and in a new chapter of life, this good fortune would not last as uh, Edie would come to relapse that same year after being prescribed pain medication after she suffered some type of illness. Oh, Once geez. again, this illness isn't really documented. I couldn't really figure out what exactly happened, but... That fucking sucks. Yeah, she got sick, took meds, and shit got hairy again. She promptly began abusing alcohol and taking barbiturates. Uh, Edie was still involved in fashion and acting at the time, and uh, she went to a fashion show at the Santa Barbara Art Museum where they... She was, like, featured on a local TV program called An American Family. That night, uh, she went to an after party. Uh, she got drunk, and she got into a fight with another guest who yelled at her and called her a junkie. Edie uh, called up her husband, who picked her up. They got into a big fight in the car ride home. She told him that she wanted to leave him, and she wasn't happy in their marriage anymore. Uh, Post got her home and gave her her sleeping pills, and she quickly fell asleep. Michael Post says her breathing sounded awful. Michael attributed this to her smoking and ignored it. He went to bed next to her and woke up next, uh, the next morning to find her dead beside him. Oh, my God. Uh, her death was ruled. Uh, uh, apparently, it literally says on her autopsy and death certificate, undetermined slash accident slash suicide. So it was because of the alcohol and the meds? Yeah. So she was drunk. The guy gave her pills and... Oh, God. She she overdosed in her bed, and Edie was dead at 28 years old. That's fucking terrible. It's fucking awful. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it fucking sucks, but this guy, I mean, maybe the guy just didn't know better. Because, like, I, you probably thought I was going to say he was going to, he killed her or something, but he just fucking, like, she took her meds and she definitely wasn't supposed to. Yeah. And who the fuck knows what was in sleeping pills in 1970? I mean, even now. There's bad shit to, in sleeping pills now. You're not supposed to take sleeping pills if you're drunk. Absolutely not. You're not supposed to take if, if, if you're not supposed to take anything if you're drunk. Yeah. Don't take a fucking thing. You can't even get a tattoo if you're drunk. Yeah. You know what I mean? She was buried in uh, Oak Hill Cemetery in Santa Barbara uh, instead of her family's uh, Boston grave plot. Apparently, the Sedgwick family has some grand plot somewhere around here, probably in Mount Auburn, honestly. But they buried her in Santa Barbara? She was buried in her hometown of Santa Barbara. That's sad. I don't know exactly why. Where she didn't have any joy. A quote from Edie is, uh, I'm in love with everybody I've ever met in one way or another. I'm just crazy. I'm a crazy, unhinged disaster of a human being. That's so sad. It's like her life ended just in the middle. If maybe perhaps even before it even started. That's sad. Unfortunately, that's, young. Uh, that's fucking young. She's yeah, 28. She's 28. And unfortunately, this is not the end of the exploitation of Edie Sedgwick. As I said, she suffered many deaths. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, actor, some guy, I have no name, Warren Beatty, bought the rights to Edie's life story and planned to make a movie of it featuring Molly Ringwald. And then the story got passed around. Like it's. 
it was like they were like getting people involved and attaching big names to it. Al Pacino was supposed to play Andy Warhol. What it was the like, fuck? It was like a whole fucking production. Oh, I wish that existed. I know, but the film fell through and was never made. Uh, and the story rights kind of fell into commercial legal Hollywood limbo. Uh, but there was once a uh, movie in 2006 called Factory Girl that was about Edie and uh, – oh, is it okay? Is yeah, it I just wanted okay? to make sure that it was still recording. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, apparently there, there was a fictionalized version of it, which is actually what triggered Bob Dylan to – Bob Dylan sued the, the filmmakers of that movie. Does because, the film still exist? It's still accessible? Yeah, it's still out there. It's called Factory Girl. It's about a young rich girl who goes to an art factory and is – you know, and there's a guy that's kind of like Bob Dylan and a guy that's, it's like, whatever. I don't know. I've never seen it. I wonder it, why he would sue. It seems foolish. It's because they depicted him in an egregiously horrible way, as if he was like a terrible person that treated her like shit and abused her. Yeah, but doesn't suing kind of make it seem like he did it? Yeah, Bob Dylan actually is very litigious. He's he's known to have sued a lot of people. Actually, we talked about this the other day, but there's a lot of famous Bob Dylan lawsuits of him suing people for various things that's a wikipedia rabbit hole i'm gonna have to go down like just the a list of bob dylan lawsuits that probably exists i'm sure i mean if you're that famous like i bet his record label just sues people for copyright shit like, you know there's probably a lot of legal shit that happens when you're that that like no, notable or whatever huh. anyway um so you might have remembered that Edie uh worked really hard after leaving New York on her autobiographical film. And she was living in a conservatorship basically with these weird filmmaker people and a bunch of doctors and shit. Wait, I have a question back yeah. up a little bit. Do you know how they got the conservatorship over her? Like why wasn't it her family? I don't know. I mean, the thing is I kind of use that word. She wasn't like, I don't know if it was legally a conservatorship, but she was living with these filmmakers under the care of a doctor and nurses. So it was like, I don't know if it was legally a conservatorship, but Maybe I should say that's my characterization and mm. my opinion. Yeah. But these people were like, had, like they were like running her. Life. They were like her surrogate parents making this movie with her, with their doctors and meds and shit. It just didn't, I don't the way it was, I, I read about it. It didn't seem right. It seemed mm. a little weird. Okay. So it's, it's a little weird. So you may remember she made an autobiographical film. I didn't mention one guy who was involved in that, who was a filmmaker named David Weissman who apparently was involved in the factory back then, knew this filmmaker, and signed on to help them make the movie. Uh, I'll just read it, but... Anyway, let me. I'll just, I'll just say it a little bit. But basically, this guy had Edie sign a publicity contract okay. during the making of this autobiographical movie where it stated that David Weissman, this filmmaker, owned the likeness publicity rights and story rights to Edie's life forever. Wow. This man made a contract that he would own her likeness, her story, everything, everything she does, all her, all of her, everything, whatever she makes about Edie Sedgwick with her face in it, he owns the rights to it. And in 2019, a court ruling, actually, uh, there was a big, a big court case where Michael Post, uh, husband of Edie at the end of her life, witnessed her death. Very unfortunate. Uh, he filed for rights to use Edie's likeness commercially in 1989, but was blocked by filmmaker David Weissman, who still owned this because she signed all publicity rights uh, to him for her autobiographical movie. Holy shit. Uh, the defining legal question in the fight was apparently 
the big question that happened in this court ruling was that apparently there's a law. Let me try. I wrote it down. It's kind of a, so the law is a legal concept called the deceased personality, which means that if somebody like me and you can't buy, doesn't matter if they're dead or alive or no one owns it. We can't buy the movie rights to Barack Obama. Mm. He's already famous. He's widely publicly known. He's a fucking historical figure. Yeah. We can't, you can't buy the rights to a fucking famous person's story. But apparently the deceased personality concept comes in is apparently you can own somebody's story if they weren't famous and you are the, like, you're the reason they're famous. Mm-hmm. So what happened in the court case, this is like the final death of Edie Sedgwick. A court battle happened where they had to decide if Edie was already famous when she signed over the publicity rights to this guy. Fuck. And dubiously in 2019, the judge, um, who's actually a woman, which is even more ironic, uh, ruled in favor of David Weissman and said that Edie was not famous when she signed over her rights and that his legal rights to her likeness and publicity and all that is legally his. That's awful. And since that ruling, it's, it's illegal for anybody to make movies or use her likeness commercially. Until when? Does it lapse when he dies? He is currently dead, actually. He, so d- he died in 2022. Last year? Yeah, he... Or he, year before last. He just died. <laughs> so um, what happened? Do, I don't... Does, her film rights in like an estate or some shit? Or is that, that an expired that guy's copyright? Estate. Maybe his fucking piece of shit son owns it or something. That's awful. I truly have no idea what happens now, but... So, dear listener, never fucking sign a contract ne- like that. Never fucking sign a contract like that. But what's just even more devastating about this is that it ended up becoming this awful final showdown many years after she died where her, her husband and who knows who else, maybe this would have gone better if this guy had better legal counsel. Maybe yeah. this guy just fucking, maybe the lawyer just fucking totally botched it or something, but she was on the cover of Vanity Fair. She was in countless art films. She associated with famous people. She was part of a famous family. She was practically a fucking millionaire. She was well-known all over New York City, countless tabloids, TV talk shows, modeled. How on in the how in the blue fuck could anybody legally decide that she wasn't famous? And the Sedgwick Foundation didn't back his case? No. It, you know what's funny? Well, I, I don't think so. I think he solely, Michael Post, it was the like the plaintiff, essentially. Do you think that there's I wonder what he wanted to do with her likeness? Maybe he was who could maybe he was a jackass too who knows yeah i don't who knows what he wanted maybe he wanted to make t-shirts who the mm-hmm. fuck could say what he was trying to do but he he tried to sue for the rights to be able to use her likeness and and he lost and the right was sustained by david weisman wow yeah and it's it's sad that's just yeah and what's even more fucked up about it too is he actually has been spoken on panels and at conventions in his lifetime about the autographical film of Edie. And it's kind of like part of his film portfolio on IMDb and Wikipedia as like an accomplishment that he did mm. as like being the guy that told Edie, Edie Sedgwick's story. Yeah. And which is just kind of gross really. And like another thing too, is that like, I think we should highlight too, like what we're saying right now in this podcast episode is like, all alleged. We don't know fucking anything. And this, I don't know. I don't know shit. Maybe this is, I, I'm just like, 
this, like, oh, oh, what I was going to say, this is all very fringe. Yeah. Like, this isn't some widely held opinion that this guy, David Weissman's a total fucking scumbag piece of shit. Mm. I don't know. I get, well, he's dead, so you can't commit defamation against dead people. So maybe it doesn't even <laughs> fucking matter. Just saying that for legal purposes. But the guy, like, just totally, like, she just got treated like fucking shit all these years. And then one last final <sighs> fucking spitting on her grave was the fact that, like, her own family can't even commercial like I sh- like nobody else could tell her story or anything. N- yeah, there's no estate. There's like no- I don't know. It's just the only thing that I guess maybe I-, I guess there's not enough information to say, but she did sign that willingly, and it is her story from her recording. So maybe it could be said that that closes the book with what she approved of versus things Perhaps. they made after her life. That's not a bad point. Yeah, that's true. And another, but another thing to consider too, is she was also freshly out of a mental hospital yeah. and on medication that's and true. in the care of doctors and nurses when she signed this contract. That's true. What the fuck? And he <laughs> was like her landlord, basically, right. right? Like this is like this isn't the filmmaker I named. I didn't mention him at the when we first mentioned that. There was two filmmakers. There was the guy that she lived with, and this guy also was involved. Mm. And he was the one who. So he's just a, a different guy. He's not even the guy she lived with. He she did not live with him. That's almost worse, actually. It is, yeah. So uh, mm. we'll end. We don't have to end the episode here, but we'll uh, end the uh, presentation with a quote uh, from Edie Sedgwick's sister. Uh, it reads: "Edie was not a victim. What destroyed Edie were all of the forces that made it inevitable that she would de- destroy herself. Mm. She was neither a passive source of inspiration." nor a covert careerist, but more than a muse who under, who understands that the light more than a muse who understood that the self was the next great art form. Should I read that again? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut that part out. Uh, the last sentence was she was neither a passive source of inf- inspiration nor a covert careerist, but she understood that the self was the next great art form. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Does this not make sense? <laughs> Okay, wait. Can you read the whole thing over again, and then we can cut that part and just do it as one <laughs> audio clip? <laughs> this is like taking the, the whole life out of the ending of it. Just, well, just, we're gonna cut that whole thing. No, we're not gonna. It's okay. Just, just read it again. Edie was not a victim. What destroyed her were all of the forces that made it inevitable that she would destroy herself. Mm.
She was neither a passive source of inspiration nor a covert careerist, but more than a muse who understood that the self was the next great art form. This isn't my fucking words. <laughs> I know that it's a weird sentence. It's it was this quote was probably something that was verbally said yeah. and then transcribed. There's also a spelling error in it by me. <laughs> anyway, no, I think she's I, just saying like Edie wasn't like some poor girl that was fucked over, even though she was, and she wasn't just amused. She like she got something. Like she understood what she was doing. Like she understood she was an influencer. I yeah. think is what her sister is saying. I mean, another thing that I'll say too, though, is if she were a man and had the exact same story, it wouldn't be like he's some poor boy that got chewed up by Hollywood. Fair, actually. I think the know. fact that she was a beautiful woman on drugs is a big part of how her story is framed. And I think that's maybe what her sister is saying, that she was an artist and she was there of her own volition and she burned herself down. And she deserves that autonomy. <sighs> actually, yeah, that's kind of a, that's an eloquent way of putting it. Because like, Another thing too, all of my years in like recovery programs and stuff and hearing from women in recovery. Mm. Another thing is that a lot of women often, a lot of women's stories are different in the sense that it's characterized usually by. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Domination or abuse from yeah. some fucking villain that gets them hooked on something or does that. You know what I mean? Like that's really a really common element in a lot of people's, a lot of women's recoveries. You know, yeah. I, I know it's a big generalization that some people might disagree with, but it's, it's dark. Yeah. So like I said at the beginning, this story. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is It's a little bit different of a story, because usually, you know, I'd want to present something that would inspire people or make mm -hmm. people feel good, but this is a story that makes you... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What a, like, punch a wall. Like, yeah. this is the type of story that makes you feel horrible and heartbroken, really. So it's like, I don't know what to take from it. Like, sure. Like, oh, don't sign bad contracts. Like, yeah, that's a lesson. But it's like, obviously, there's something way more transcendent it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hmm. Than that, you know, because she was an artist and an icon and made some serious advancements and contributions to fashion and makeup and the 1960s art scene. I mean, people think of Twiggy as a, this timeless icon. Yeah. People think of Nico from the Velvet Underground as a timeless icon. Yeah. Or Kusama, who was another contemporary of them, or I don't know. I mean, there's countless names and it's not those women's fault that this happened to Edie, you know, but it's like just... Yeah. I don't know what to say. It's like, it's hard. Because, yeah, I don't know. Thoughts? It's a crazy story. And I mean, I think it it inspires me to learn more about her and to go look up her films, or at least the um, autobiographical movie. It's a shame that the person who made that film is the guy who owns her film rights now, because it makes me feel a little weird about watching it. But yeah. I do want to hear her life from her own mouth, you know? Right. Yeah, because... And, like, that's another problem with, with her life story, too, was that, I mean, I think Bob Dylan and potentially others' lawsuits mm. also. That's fucked up. Doesn't this make you just fucking hate Bob Dylan? Yeah. Like, what a fucking scumbag. <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? Anyway. Yeah, I don't what know. the hell? His reputation is not, like... I'm like I'm. I mean, I'm. A, I'm a big music music nerd, music fan, folk music fan. He's written some good songs, sure, but that dude, bad dude. Yeah. I mean, people talk about Picasso all the time. They say, "Hey, great contributions to art." Terrible dude. Yeah. It's Bob Dylan to me. Interesting. I didn't know that about Bob Dylan, but oh yes, based on what we talked about today. Yeah, bad. Uh, does a restaurant of this McDonald's look open? Uh. Probably not. We're probably close to home. Let's just go home. Um, okay, sure. 
but yeah, I don't know. It's like, I really wanted to get this. I, I had, I, I didn't want to just do the Andy Warhol episode part two. Yeah. Cause I didn't want, I don't want to exhaust people on that subject matter. No, this is different. Yeah. I think it's good too to get into like, I don't know. We talked briefly during the Andy Warhol episode about how he surrounded himself with these artists and creators that in the media at the time and in a lot of historical documentation, we look back at it, people just write them off as like they were crazy sexual deviants or on drugs or whatever. So it's good to really get into the meat of that and be like, who is somebody that was there that yeah, probably was characterized that way, but also was an incredible talent and somebody that you should know about. Because there was a lot of duality in all of them, or most of them. Right, and this is a pretty, this could potentially be interpreted as disrespectful, what I'm about to say, but I don't mean it that way at all. But it kind of reminds me almost of the story of Henry VIII, where good on British historians for this, but Henry VIII's story isn't just about Henry VIII. There's like how probably fucking thousands of books about Henry VIII's wives. Yeah. Because there's such a co- such a remarkable and interesting part of, of royal history, yet because they're women that he essentially consumed and destroyed in his quest for being whatever the fuck he was trying to be, mm. yet we have so many like kind of chauvinistic and awful artists of contemporary nature and past who essentially consumed their muses mm. and, and the, and the women in their life to make these things that they made and people don't tell their stories. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like, is that a disturbing parallel to draw? Like, no, I think it's Edie Sedgwick and like Anne Boleyn or something. I mean, no, I mean, it is disturbing, but not because of the drawing the parallel. I think that it's true. And I think that that is where that sentiment of, um, I don't know if we said what her sister's name is, but the statement of like, she isn't a victim. Yeah. I think that that holds so much power and it's such an emotional thing to say, because that's usually how we paint people that have experienced that kind of reputational like erasure. But what that does is it overshadows and eclipses the entirety of that person as an individual, as an artist, whatever, by what happened to them. And I mean, anybody who's experienced domestic violence or addiction or whatever, like nobody wants that to be the only thing anybody associates with them. Like you don't want to be a victim. It's not really a good thing to do. Even if you're trying to hold someone's memory close, you're just erasing everything else, you know? So I think, I think it's cool to get into the rest of it. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, when like a local citizen, uh, you know, tragically passes away from, from drug use and stuff, nobody is like, oh yeah, what a junkie piece of shit. Like people say, oh, they lit up a room and they were this wonderful person, which was definitely true, you know, but with, we, we don't, we don't offer, uh, celebrities, a lot of the time that same, uh, you know, generosity and empathy, you know what I mean? Where we look at people in the public eye as just fair game for anything. Yeah. You know, fuck them. Like they're rich and famous. I don't give a fuck about their humanity. Yeah. And I think that probably plays an element into it too, where there's probably people who might look at a story like that and say, Oh, like, Oh, boo hoo. Yeah. You know, but that's just highly reductive and, 
and, and whack on it, you know? I mean, you know, I get it. Like, I make fun of celebrities and stuff all the time, but even with that being said, I would never, like, deliberately hurt a celebrity or something. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, open, like, do something, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it's different. Like, it's, like, different to make fun of them than to forget that, like, that person's a, a, a fucking person. person yeah. Right? It's hard, too, when somebody passed so long ago that they feel so historic. Because another thing that's, like, fucked up about this is the people that are involved in this story are all still alive. By rights, she should be. There should be a whole career that followed everything that you're talking about. Right. The books that she could have written, the movies, like, that she could have been a director. She could have been, like, she could have owned a, a fucking clothing line. Yeah. Like, think about that. Almost every fucking famous clothing line was owned or founded by an an heiress or an inheritor, right? Like so many massive brands are started by people who who inherited a, a fucking ridiculous amount of money and started some shit, mm. right? I don't know, like Versace's. I'm talking out of my ass. I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm just saying, like she could have done a she lot. Could have done something. Like we could have all been wearing like fucking like like Sedgwick sweaters or something. Yeah. Right. Or like it, like ED eyeliner brand or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't fucking know, dude. It's crazy. It's interesting. But another thing to consider too, is like, that's fucking sad too. Is that like, actually, I don't know. That's, I was about to just engage in like insane conjecture. I don't know. Just like, like if her if her if her dad wasn't her dad even yeah you know but I don't know even that though like the thing that's so sad too in the like end of her story is that she did get sober and she did recover and she married and was like living a happy life and then was prescribed medications and relapsed like, right it, it almost doesn't even matter everything that she went through because she overcame all of that but right. Yeah, it's like she didn't die fucking speedballing in the back of a fucking van or something. Like, she didn't shoot up a fucking finger of heroin and die. She accidentally overdosed from sleeping pills. Which is so sad, too, because, like, that's that's nobody's fault, but it's unfortunate because you don't even know that she consented to really taking them if she was so fucked up already. Right, and it's, like, probably, I mean... That's a really hard situation. Right, and it's like, this guy, he probably fucking feels like he killed her you know i'm actually concerned i don't know if that guy is alive or not but that guy might if he's alive he's probably not famous and he's probably a regular person out in the world yeah so i mean i don't want to like say anything you know i i mean he probably feels fucking terrible because that guy mathematically could be alive yeah so all like you said all she should be alive i don't know But yeah, it's like, I don't know, man, based on like, there's another, like, there's a YouTuber who's like kind of small, but worth checking out, uh, named final girl studios who had a video that helped me make the script and like massively where a big part of her YouTube's like mission statement basically is this isn't every video. It's more of like, they're like feminist film and pop culture video essays, Mm -hmm. but she's talked a lot about muses like in just the women who were called muses yeah instead like who were because like and and i've been thinking about that a lot because like every 
artists that I've ever looked into or been a fan of, not every, I mean, maybe there's some random exceptions, but pretty much all of them always have a group of people who were there at the ground floor that supported them and were there. And either they had great relationships with them and helped them along the way, or were people that they just fucking stomped on the necks of as they climbed up. Yeah. Like there's people that were there at the bottom that nobody, people only talk about when they're diving into like the absolute nitty gritty, most niche information. Mm -hmm. That's just not part of the story, you know? And I think that, and what I kind of like the, you know, from the, the YouTube channel, final girl studios, like, this idea of taking a more literary, like academic view of, of muses. Yeah. Of these women who like Edie Sedgwick, who were, who are like kind of, are just not really a part of, of mainstream culture, really. Maybe that's changing. I mean, there was a time where Frida Kahlo could have been considered way before our lifetimes, but could have been considered more like obscure. And now she's, yeah. A pop culture icon. Well, that's another thing too, though, is like, it doesn't sound like Evie Sedgwick considered herself a muse. It sounds like she considered herself an actress. Right. Almost as if to be called a muse was demoting her. Yeah. It's centering Warhol or centering Dylan or Bob. Yeah. Dylan. And the fact that, I mean, I know that she's not as famous as they are, but the fact that she died, what, 50 years ago? Oh, yeah. Uh, so she died at 28, ago? born in 43. I forget. So she died in like the early 70s. That's fucked. Yeah. And that we're still talking about her. Like if she had lived to be sure. 80. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard I mean, to say. You could even you could look at Yoko Ono as maybe an example of what she like, you know, the kind of path she could have gone down where Yoko Ono has this like, you know, she's practically She's like the most famous, evil, conniving woman, even though it's like a completely untrue story. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of like valid criticisms of her or whatever that I don't know about. But like the whole idea that she ruined the Beatles and she's this mean, manipulative woman is like pretty much baloney as far as I know. Yeah. And she she grew old and made art and did weird shit and... Just, you know, she just became a weird old art lady mm-hmm. living her life. I guess I just find the concept of a muse in itself to be maybe a sexist concept. Because yeah. when we talk about muses, most of the people that we're talking about are artists in their own right. And, yeah. like, there are plenty of women who make art. Like, Frida Kahlo was so inspired to paint Diego Rivera all the time. Like, most of her paintings were self-portraits, portraits about love or portraits about Diego. Even her st- uh, still lives. But we don't consider Diego Frida's muse. Right. He was just a man. Yeah, it sounds funny saying that, doesn't it? It's a sexist concept. Like, what you're talking about is, not you, but, like, what you're talking about when you use that term is a woman that a man was obsessed with and made art about. Because he couldn't think of something on his own. <laughs> right. I don't know. I just don't really respect it conceptually anyway. Yeah. So, it, it's just... it kind of makes sense that that concept, when applied to these women, would eclipse their careers and their potential anyway because it's already putting them on unequal footing by even considering them that Mm. yeah dude and it's it's funny like i'm pretty sure you're like you know you're really interested in like greek mythology and stuff 
Mm. The f- word muse, I'm pretty sure it comes from Greek mythology. Yeah. Where, uh, like the, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm pretty sure the idea of a muse was a like, kind of a spirit that creates something. Yeah. There were the, I mean, you're putting me on the spot a little bit because I don't really oh, know that right. much about Greek <laughs> mythology, but yeah, you love it. Though. There were the muses. They were, I think they were sister goddesses that right. were like, there was a muse of like music, a muse of, I think, um, poetry. Like they, they represented like the literary arts. Right. But they embodied that. They weren't inspiring that. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? Which is kind of, it's, it's interesting, like, to consider, like, it's almost as if that word has been bastardized in a sense where people, perhaps a better use of the word muse would be to say you have been, you were like possessed by a, the, a muse. Like you were like, you know, the, the muse spiritually worked through you. Which like, I think is what the root of that term would be. Right. It's like they overwhelmed me. I was obsessed with her. She was like my muse. Right. Like, like the muse came down to me and blessed me with the power of art. And it was through her. It's like calling someone the Madonna. Yeah. Which is honestly just kind of creepy. I know. I've never <laughs> been, a, I've never used the word muse to like, I've never felt comfortable using it because I've always felt like it was just kind of a goofy thing to say. Like I'm, like, oh, that's my, you're my muse. Or that's well, I mean, you can call me that if you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, it's, it kind of reminds me like that book, your mom got me Rick Rubin's like book about art or whatever the fuck mm-hmm. I've been reading it. And he, he refers to the same concept, but he call he says the source. He says, See, that's he, so much more respectful. He says source. Like I, like this, what she refers to is like this, you know, ambient spiritual force Yeah. that puts ideas and art into people. See, I like that because the thing is, I think the issue, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying all of this and I do actually agree with what I'm saying as I'm saying it, but I'm also like kind of making up this take on the fly right now. Like mm-hmm. it's not, <laughs> I'm not judging you if you have used the term, I guess. Right. Yeah. Whatever. It's, it's common. Not it's not no that deep. Deal. But I think that the issue with it is the inherent um, genderedness of the term. Right. Like I've never heard anybody refer to a man as a muse unless the artist was a gay man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's just a, yeah. it's a kind of weird um, thing to say. And it right. robs the source of legitimacy. And it would be weird to call a woman, a platonic friend, your muse. It's yeah. That it's inherently a, kind of romantic creepy because do. it's putting this person, like when we break it down linguistically, I guess it makes more sense too, but it's like putting this person on like a godlike pedestal and acting like they're it's like in the same wheelhouse as saying somebody's ethereal or pixie like or a manic pixie dream girl actually yeah yeah perhaps perhaps i wonder if we could come up with this right now me and you we could coin it or like develop this concept perhaps muse is a subsection of manic pixie dream girl i feel like manic pixie dream girl is a stupid muse it's just a muse you respect less. Right, but it's not but the Manic Pixie Dream Girl does not is not predicated on developing art. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl literary in a literary sense provokes personal growth in the protagonist. That's true actually. But yeah. the muse is a romantic interest that creates art at their dis, at their dispense, at their expense. Like the the muse is consumed to create art in most concepts. Mm. Like this fe- a femme fatale muse. 
Yeah. She's like killing me, but I can't, I can't take my, I can't stop seeing her. And I'm writing these songs about, I wrote a whole album. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stupid shit. You know, I don't know. Kind of a. Yeah, it's like it's interesting because it, they are adjacent concepts, and I haven't really thought about that before. But I guess yeah. w- with a manic pixie dream girl, typically what you see is like um, I don't remember what his name is in Eternal Sunshine, the Jim Carrey character, but right. Clementine is his manic pixie dream girl, and his whole thing is that he's like this boring guy that is shy and afraid, and like Ramona Flowers, that's the same thing with Scott Pilgrim. Like mm. the main character that's looking at this girl is so inspired by her like Zoe Deschanel out of the boxness that it coaxes him into being brave enough to believe in himself and to try new things and to like get into music or something like he was some dumb loser until he met this girl. And then she is so carefree and so unaware of her surroundings. And so like not caring what people think of her, that she just is herself and it inspires him to be that way a little bit. And then she disappears or dies or something where I think the muse is like in order to even Mary Poppins. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's like Mary Poppins that you have sex with. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm only there when you need me, not when you want me. That's a line from, um, it's not from Mary Poppins. It's from the other one. The live action one. that's basically Mary Poppins. It came out in like 2006. Mrs. Doubtfire. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. No, but I think, I think the thing about a muse is that, Another thing that's inherent to it is like the academia-ness of it is like someone who is not already an intellectual would not even recognize the muse as the muse. Like they're finding this diamond in the rough. They're so inspired by her. Nobody else sees how wonderful she is. And they loud her and give her the praise she deserves through their art. Hmm. Which is, of course, deserving of her museness in every case. (sighs) Wow. Like it's like a manic pixie dream girl, but we're both so fucking cool and smart also. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. feel like, I feel like a lot of manic pixie dream girl stories could totally work if they just also include like uh, not included. I feel like that's just kind of like a lame word <laughs> to incorporate, but like almost like if the story incorporated the, like the, the character development of, of the, of the woman, like, I don't, I don't, maybe, I don't know. Cause there, there are manic pixie dream girl stories that are cool. Right. Like that aren't bad books or movies. Right. Do you, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I something know. that's inherent to the trope though. Well, it's a gray area because I think there are some characters that are similar to those characters that are interesting or those characters can be appreciated in a way of like, I don't know. Like, I kind of like stories like that sometimes because I appreciate seeing a character that is potentially neurodivergent, potentially mentally ill or whatever. But the reason that those stories never get into the meat of anything and the reason that they're not as, um, are are we going home? Oh no, we don't have to. I'm aimlessly driving. Okay. Um, I think the reason that that archetype label exists is because part of the defining characteristic of that character is that you never really see her for who she is because the main character can't do that to be inspired by her because he has no sense of self no sense of like social understanding and doesn't understand how she exists the way that she does which is why she's inspiring to him 
Right. Perhaps it's not the Manic Pixie Dream Girl that is the problem, but it's the abuse of the trope that is that is the problem. Like people using the trope in a disrespectful way versus using it in the way that you just described. I don't think it would be the tr- that trope if the character was fleshed out, though. Oh, like that? Where the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is in reference to the... Yeah, right. Okay. Because a dream girl doesn't exist. To have depth and to have flaws and to be a whole human character would be to not be a dream girl. Hmm. It would be a normal girl with depth. That's interesting. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, the, the dreaminess is because he doesn't get her and she's so crazy and has no right. no fear or whatever. Like, most of these characters are usually just, like, written as if they are, like, ADHD, autistic, or have depression. And that would be a much more interesting character if that was an honest depiction of that character, but that's not sexy. That's just normal. Which is right. the trope. Yeah, and people don't want to, like... And it's, like, takes, like, a lot of thought. It takes a lot of careful attention to to incorporate themes like that into something that's supposed to be romantic or funny. But a good artist can. A good yeah. artist can. Like, I think... I don't know. Like, I could see somebody saying, like, well, it's supposed to be funny and cute, not about mental illness. But it's just like, well, you know, maybe if you were better. Yeah. Maybe if this was a better story. And I think that there are examples of... I mean, I'm going to come up short here because I feel like I don't really um, watch a lot of romance right now. So I don't know that I have examples that I need. But I think that there are characters like... Like uh, Claire from Outlander is like a hot-headed, like she says whatever she's thinking kind of character. Sometimes she makes dumb mistakes. Like she's very free-spirited, whatever. She could be framed as a manic pixie dream girl if the entire story was from Jamie's perspective and we didn't get any like character development in her. But she's more of a well-rounded character and the story is from her perspective. Yeah. Or who? what about Mandy from Shameless? Yeah. Mandy could have been a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but we get into her background. We know that she... I mean, Shameless isn't like a great gem of writing, but... <laughs> right, yeah. Mandy, it's got some problems. That's Mandy okay. could have been, though. But she's not... She's not super um, smart. She doesn't know a ton of, like, niche things. She actually looks up to Lip a lot in the sense that she thinks that he's super intelligent. She just cares about him a lot. She's humanized in the sense that we've seen her experience abuse and then eventually we see relationship patterns pop up that are related to that abuse in her character. She's she's human. You know what right. I mean? And that humanity can't exist while still being part of the Mandy Pixie Dream Girl trope. Hmm. I find it it's interesting that the Ed Sedgwick Sedgwick story sparked this 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 concept or this thought. I think that a lot of her story feels wrapped up in these gendered tropes to me. Like in the same way we were talking about how it's hard to tell what the truth was of Andy Warhol. I think that everything that I've seen before this presentation, everything that you wrote, whatever, I think that the quote from her sister really hammered it home too, because it's the last point, but she does have this ethos of being a sad girl. Like there's quotes from guys from Harvard in the sixties that just wanted to have sex with her and fix her. Like she's a, she sounds like a Manda Pixie dream girl. Yeah. But if a man, I mean, there are plenty of them, men that died of drug overdoses at 27 or 28. They were artists. Is Kurt Cobain a Manda Pixie dream girl? Right. Basquiat. Yeah. Like we think right. of their career accomplishments. Damn. I've never drawn parallels between them before. That's interesting. 28 isn't really a young girl. It's not really wayfish. It's not really like 
she was an adult woman with a ton of career accomplishments. It was on the cover of Vanity Fair. She popularized the miniskirt as a concept. Yeah, shit, like, dude. If I was on Vanity Fair, I'm 28 right now. Yeah. Are you a little boy? I'm a Are you a sad idiot. little boy? No, no, I'm not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm not like... No, uh, I think... And it's interesting, too. That's why I was asking if the reason... Up. That's why I was asking if the reason that she felt like the films made her look foolish is because she was being treated like a little girl. Because it sounds like she was kind of gaslit into that role for a lot of her life from before she even moved to New York. Yeah. Right. And like the famous, it kind of reminds me of the famous Bob Dylan song that's allegedly written about Edie or, or is legally required to acknowledge that it's not written about Edie Sedgwick. Douchebag. Uh, Just like a woman. The, the chorus is like, I think it's, she cries. No, it's like she cries. No. It's like she talks just like a woman. She blubbed just like a woman, but she cries like a little girl. Yeah, what the or fuck? Or some shit like that. Creep. Like a little girl. <laughs> but yeah, go listen to those three songs. What is it? Pillbox Hat, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, Just Like a Woman, and Rolling Stone. Re-listen to those mm. and think about Edie Sedgwick and just like, just like... It's it's like Bob Dylan's just pointing and laughing at a drug addict girl, woman, and being like, "Yeah, you bitch." Yeah. Ha. Show serves you right. That's like what he's. It's like he's. That's what he's doing. Yeah. I apologize for using that derogatorily in this context. But <laughs> it was my hypothetical Bob Dylan. It wasn't you. It was, it was Bob. Dylan. It was Bob. I was playing a character. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah. Like, I'll it's have just, to go back and listen to those because I haven't really. I mean, I grew up listening to Bob Dylan, but sure. I never was really listening to Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? And I will say, I had on. never even heard the song "Just Like a Woman" or "Pillbox Hat" before. Yeah, I'd never even knew that those songs existed. Because there's probably like 10,000 Bob Dylan songs. Also, wait, you said Tambourine Man earlier. Did he write that? I thought that was a cover. You know what? It could be a cover. I, I don't even know the end. I've always I thought that, that he wrote it. It's a good song. That's the thing. Like, it's like, it's like Bob Dylan's a lot. He's a lot like Picasso. My mom used to sing that song to me when I was a little kid. But I used to listen to the Joni Mitchell version, I think. Right. Yeah. That's a hey, good version. Mr. Sure. Tambourine Um... Play song for I'm me. I'm like pretty fucking sure Bob Dylan wrote that, but he Fuck. definitely was known to cover. He was definitely. I mean, that was a kind of sign of the times. Like every, I mean, like fucking like seventy percent of Johnny Cash's discography is covers. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's that was just a folk singer thing to do. It still is, really. Well, actually, I feel like we should talk about Bob Dylan in a different episode. It's, Honestly, it feels disrespectful to look it up to. now. Yeah, fuck him. I um, don't know. Yeah. I mean, I like I said, for all the Bob Dylan fans, I mean, he's got a lot of great songs. Interesting guy, sure. But, mm. I mean, are we really going to, like, be spineless, uh, th- that spineless that we're going to pretend like these, this shit didn't happen? Yeah. Like, don't be a bitch, dude. Like, we, we can, we can, we're grown up enough to look at, to look the stuff in the eye and still like the art, right? Like, come on, guys. You yeah. guys, for God's sakes, you like Harry Potter. <laughs> like, fuck, you know, shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh, my anyway. God. Yeah. No, that's Whatever. all cool. That makes me, that inspires me to look into the um, films of Edie Sedgwick. Yeah, you know, I feel like a dumbass because not once did it occur to me while writing this whole thing that I should watch those movies. Because <laughs> while doing the Andy Warhol script, because I have seen clips and snippets and stuff from those movies, I mm. did not feel inclined to watch them at all. 
Um, so I, I kind of assumed that the E.D. Sedgwick ones were also like... Like they just sucked or something? Just like unwatchable avant-garde garble. I like avant-garde films, but they are kind of hard to watch. I mean, I like the thing is too, is that like it can also get really fatiguing to watch uh, movies from that time period too, because not just the black and white, but the also the audio is like can be so it's just like i don't know yeah like it's almost like it's almost like film noir kind of stuff yeah like a lot of that stuff's great probably but it's like oh it feels like it's God. reaching through time come on i do want to i do want to learn more though I, I actually i knew vaguely that you wrote a script out ed sedgwick but i didn't know what we were going to talk about tonight really at all um that's so. the only reason i do this one because there's another one that you don't know about yet that i really wanted to do instead of this one. Oh really yeah but this one just had to get the fuck out of the way because it was because I know that here's another thing, too, is that I know how curious you are <laughs> and how much you read about stuff. So I feel like if you if I tell you what the scripts are about, you're just going to go learn about it on your own. No, I won't. Well, I'm not allowed to. I know I won't. Well, it's not that. It's just that, like, well, it's cheating. Here's another thing. You just did consider. all this research. Is it possible that po- other podcasts that have this format are pretending and they both know what the script is about, but one person's pretending. Well, is we, that possible? Like, am possible. I an idiot? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I like the reveal. I think it's fun. Um, the only thing I wish though, is that like in this instance, I would have wanted to have seen more of her artwork beforehand. So I could have spoken on it a little more because I can only react to what you're saying. I don't have any mm. background information, but that's okay. We also, we've been recording for like two hours. So it's not like we didn't have a lot to say. Is this a two hour episode? Hell yeah, baby. Oh, baller. Um, Great. Yeah, good job. Well, thank you. Um, I do want to add one last thing, too, just because the reason I have, I think, a lot of thoughts on this as far as the gender stuff goes is I'm actually taking a class right now about psychology and gender, which for the most part has been dragging a little bit. But there's something I've been thinking about a lot, which is the concept of benevolent sexism. And uh, I mean, I knew about that, but... I didn't really think critically about it before and I had to write an essay about it recently. So I've been thinking about it a lot in the last week, but it's the idea that, um, hostile sexism is what we think of when people say sexist or whatever. It's like somebody being a total piece of shit, like indefensibly and loudly, uh-huh. abrasively, um, like saying something fucked up about a woman because she's a woman or saying that somebody who's pregnant should lose their job. Like saying something that's like indefensibly sexist. There's benevolent sexism too, which is much more common. And studies have shown that women are actually less likely to stand up against it because they're more inclined to believe that the person has good intentions. Mm. And it's when people say things like, like in a fight, somebody's like, you're so cute. Instead of actually talking to you about what you're upset about, it's saying, um, telling somebody at your job that they're beautiful when it's not really contextually appropriate and you're not hitting on them, but you're also like, why are you saying that? Or treating somebody like they're a little girl, like she cries like a little girl that kind of thing. Like it's saying things that are rooted in the belief, saying things that are intended to be kind that the person means in a nice way and isn't trying to be rude, but is rooted in the belief that women are inferior to men and that they're weaker or more sensitive or not as responsible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've just been thinking about that a lot because I think it's more pervasive and more, um, it's more of a threat really because people are gonna stand up against it most of the time when someone says something that's just outright sexist. Like if I was, if I applied to an art show and everybody that got in was a man and I didn't, people would be like, all right, that's fucked up. But if like, I was reading about a case study where people were asked 
a group of women were asked um, to talk to a group of men about a policy that was like, if you get pregnant, we're going to let you go of this job. And I mean, this was in like the nineties or something, but still, and the men in the first group were hostile about it and said that women can't handle work, that they need to take care of their kids, blah, 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 get in the kitchen. And they were all mad about that. And they of course said in the survey results that that's fucked up and that they didn't want to be around these men anymore. The second group, the men all said like, we think that it's really, it's a hard decision and you're going through so much, like you deserve the time off. You deserve to be with your kids. Like women are natural caretakers. Like your husband wouldn't be able to handle it without you. And those women were much more statistically not inclined to much less inclined statistically to actually make a scene about that. Even though the ruling, like the rule that they were talking about was the same and was inherently sexist. And the women knew that in both groups, they were less likely to be upset about it because they thought the men had good intentions. Yeah. And I think that when we talk about history and like another example was in obituaries that like men's obituaries usually talk about their career accomplishments and people that they met and things that they did. And women's obituaries usually talk about their kids and like recipes that they made and happy memories people have with grandma or whatever. Right. And I think that that is something that colors history and art history a lot of the time is like we're going to remember the emotional moments in a woman's life more than the emotional moments in a man's life. And we're going to remember like she was struggling with addiction. She had abortions or she had tons of kids and was a really good mom or she was a really terrible mom or whatever more than we're going to remember the career moments and the things that were actually accomplished. And I think that that's something that femme artists struggle with while they're alive and that they're aware of, which is really difficult. And it's a psychological torture trap to even deal with when you're alive. But once you've passed, that's also something that's going to color your legacy. And when it's been 50, 60 years of time since then, it's really hard to get to the root of what somebody was actually like. In a similar way to when we were talking about Andy Warhol, we were saying that the fact that he was gay might have colored the way that people talked about him he still, he had this like overlapping sort of intersectional and at odds privilege and disadvantage of being a gay man where I think Edie might've had something kind of similar in the sense that she was a woman who was a like sex symbol fashion icon at the time. That's only a symbol of power when you're alive and contemporary. I think another example is Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. She was one of the most important and like powerful women in the world, but also wasn't in a very poignant way. And that's what we remember about her for the most part. Yeah. How weird is that? Like, like Kim Kardashian's a fucking far cry from what Marilyn Monroe was. I mean, their role in pop culture is similar, like just famous, beautiful woman who is a model and promotes beauty product. I don't fucking know. Like they're like similarly famous, but like Kim Kardashian is like, has this like, CEO financially independent like girl boss thing mm. when that that concept couldn't have even existed in Marilyn Monroe's life yeah right I think it's tough too because like I mean god forbid but if something tragic happened to Kim Kardashian right now would we remember her that way still that's an interesting question if she like overdosed tomorrow 30 years from now would we remember her as a CEO girl boss like capitalism icon or would you remember her as a tragic figure that died due to the oppression of like gender roles you know unfortunately probably the latter yeah it's it's kind of interesting because this idea of like oh she was a victim of the times or a victim of misogyny like it's almost it's like that's also like it's that's also a kind of demeaning right 
Yeah, I mean, like, it goes without saying, dude. <laughs> yeah. Everybody is. 50% of us are, so don't waste breath on it, you know? Mm. I mean, I don't know. That's controversial, but it, there's yeah. a lot more. I think that that context and that backdrop actually puts way more power behind the accomplishments that she did achieve. Talking about Edie Sedgwick. Yeah. Like, being somebody that's struggling with active addiction, coming from a horrible family background... She had financial family support and maybe a relationship with her siblings, but no backing from her parents. Like just like so much like heaviness in her life that should have led her to a really terrible outcome, honestly. And she was still college educated. She was still acting and all this stuff. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair. She went down in history and she died young, unfortunately, from an accident. It wasn't, I don't know. It's sad that that was the ending, but I think there was a lot in the middle. Yeah. Especially when you compare it to like her siblings that she had two siblings before she passed away that one of them committed suicide and the other one maybe committed suicide or was in an accident. Yeah. Like it was very possible that she could have met an end like that before she accomplished anything. Yeah. And I mean, with the way shit was going, it's a wonder she didn't really. Like she actually sounds like a very strong and like capable person. Yeah, that's the thing, too, that's, like, interesting is, like, I, I like she's often colored the same way that we look at all the other factory stars, where, like, the idea of, like, looking at some, like, every single Silver Factory movie star from back then, they all seem to have Wikipedia pages, but the type of Wikipedia pages that don't have a picture, and it's one paragraph that says they were at the Silver Factory. Yeah. That's pretty much all of them. And to say, oh... They were a silver factory superstar. That means that they were an absolutely out of control, zany, unhinged, wild drug addict. Yeah. That's like what that basically means. Like there's no Warhol superstars that were like, oh, well, a well-rounded, well-adjusted intellectual that went on to publish books. Yeah. And raise children. Like that didn't, I don't think that's fucking any of them. Like they all died and it's like, I, and like, the, and it's kind of interesting cause I was actually, I was on my way to make the point that Edie Sedgwick is unfairly lumped into that, all of those people, but all of those people are unfairly lumped into all of those people. Yeah. Cause sure. A lot of the folks back then were just there for the drugs or were there to sell drugs or something. But like we talked about in the Andy Warhol episode, those people were artists yeah, and dancers and musicians. And I don't know. It's like, it kind of like, it kind of makes you think of like this, like infinite conversation of power dynamics and art and stuff. And yeah, it's like, I don't know. Did Andy Warhol have a responsibility to those people? You know, did he have some kind of like, did he have some kind of responsibility where he shouldn't have let them do all those drugs in a perfect world? But I don't know. I think it's tough because another thing, too, that's, like, I think, I don't know, controversial statement right now because, like, I don't know, everybody should take care of themselves and do what's healthy for them. But sure. I think that sometimes the fine arts world can have such a stick up its ass about drug use. Like, name right. me one rock and roll star from music history who wasn't a drug addict. Yeah, probably, like, less than 1% of them. Are none of them valid? They're not artists. They're not <laughs> musicians because they did drugs. Like, what the fuck? Are we serious? Yeah. A lot of them aren't valid because they just fucking sucked. <laughs> I know. Like, like fucking like Axl Rose or something. Yeah, fuck man. Like, I think that they're separate, completely separate circles 
in the Venn diagram of personality. Like, it just doesn't mean that you're good or bad ethically or artistically to be on drugs. It's just another thing that is a fact. Yeah. And it's like in, in regular culture, like we're kind of like people like it's a pretty new thing. Like it's almost like a 2010s thing to like activism to end the stigma of drug use yeah, and harm reduction. Like this is a new concept. Like we're some of the first adult, a generation of adults that like that think about that and people. And that's like, like that isn't like a crazy, like, like out of this world notion. Yeah. Like, Hey, respect that guy, even though he's on drugs, like he's human. Like, you know, I don't know. Like another thing, like even it's also really, really common for people who pass away from, from drug overdoses that a lot of the times the families will omit that from obituaries. Yeah. But a lot of people say that they'll write died suddenly or unexpectedly or something because they don't, yeah, they don't want to be stigmatized or, you know, looked down upon or to have the memory of their loved one be remembered in some kind of shitty way. But it's also now becoming really common for these families to just to say it like openly and be like my, our family suffered from addiction in the home and that's how they passed away. And that's fucked. And it's like not, and it like is a way of empathizing and relating and destigmatizing it instead of just hiding it. Yeah. And pretending, you know what I mean? That that didn't happen because that's just, that's fucked up. You, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't conceal the fact that somebody died from cancer. Yeah. But you like would. Like some kind of moral failing. Yeah, you would if cancer was like stigmatized. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And I think that that stigma, when we talk about like artistic legacy and like validity of the creations of somebody that's on drugs, like I think if you unpack it a little bit more too, some of that stigma is just like the implication that somebody that's on drugs, I mean, I I feel like what I'm about to say might be offensive, but I'm saying that it's not a good thing. But like the idea that that person might not be intellectual or intelligent and on drugs, like I think fine art and like avant-garde art and film and whatever, like there's sort of a um, pre-assumption that in order to get it or to do it well, you have to have some kind of intelligence or academic background to be able to like get it. Like there's a level of getting it and you have to be kind of in to understand it, you know, which I don't really agree with anyway, but that's just the ethos of fine arts. I think is there's some level of that, like there's required reading where rock and roll music, like hardcore, whatever, um, there's sort of like the talent and the craziness comes from being a fucking crazy person. Like you're such a badass, like you're so cool and you don't have to be intellectual to be that. You just have to be like real shit, you know? And you can do that while you're fucked up. And sometimes depending on what time period, what kind of music, like whoever the audience is being fucked up can make you more that. But I don't think that the same is true in fine arts, which is just an interesting thing to observe because I think that fine arts historically erases that what we talked about in the Andy Warhol episode of like, he was a genius that hung out with drug addicts every single day and also bought drugs for them and did the drugs. (laughs) But it was for intellectual philosophical reasons. Like why is the word genius and the word addict? Why are those at odds? Right. Yeah. I, I personally feel like I'm, I'm putting genius right up there with muse. Yeah. Where it's just a... It's just a myth. It's just a stupid word to use. That's true. It's like saying someone's a genius to me is like saying like they're like some like without fault, unstoppable alien intelligence. 
It's like no one's yeah. like that. Which might be Albert where the, Einstein wasn't fucking like that. Yeah. He was. I don't. I don't. Whatever. Which might be where the conflict lies, though, because it's like I think to think that to think that somebody intelligent can't use drugs right. is kind of an othering perspective of like like could never be me kind of thing you know or like people that like they they didn't do drugs they were sober and they hung out with drug addicts to get the perspective of somebody who was on a different plane like what the fuck are you talking about right some of them the most like lauded and celebrated literary icons in the fucking universe were vicious drug addicts yeah like david foster wallace author of infinite jest the most blowhard intellectual dumbass book in the world yeah. was, I believe was, a, was addicted to heroin. Fact check me on that. I don't remember. Or Charles uh, Bukowski was a huge drunk. drunk. Yeah. Drunk every fucking day of his life from the time he was like nine until he died. Probably actually, I also made that up. I don't know. If that's drinking true. is actually a weird gray area with fine arts. I think because right. everybody drinks like ruthlessly, even now, like free wine at gallery openings is still standard. So right. Yeah. I mean, drinking. I don't know. Yeah. We all, we definitely give a pass to the alcohol. But drugs, or, yeah. I feel like people are very stigmatizing about and they don't, I don't know, I guess if you really split hairs, it's a little bit complicated. But I think that there is that element of like, if somebody is a drug addict, they must be a fool and you can't be an artist if you're a fool. So, and it just is not true. And it's so fucked up to think that. And it also creates this bubble of like, either putting artists on a pedestal and erasing that part of their identity, which is not really from a historical documentation perspective is just like not genuine and also takes away from us the event, the opportunity to learn more from their biography, but either that or just completely discrediting the artist, which is worse really. Yeah. And another thing too, is that when we, when people die from drinking, we feel so bad for them. Yeah. Like, it's like, holy fuck. Like, that sucks. Like, yeah. Like, everyone just feel like it's so sad because it's an accident. Yeah. You know, but they don't, you know, it like goes without saying, like, people don't give that same generosity to somebody who is, you know, accidentally did fentanyl molly or something, you know. Which isn't right. Or, you know, or they were IV drug using or something. Yeah. But yeah, the alcohol is it's totally chill. It's like, oh, you know. And the reason that I think I'm harping on a lot of this right now, too. I tried to say this when we were doing the Andy Warhol episode, but I got caught up in my words and I don't think I expressed it the way I wanted to. So I'm a little happier where we're at right now. But I just think that this is one of those things that I like to caution the listener to of when you're reading historical biographies of anybody, not just artists, but really read between the lines on what you're reading because there's so many overlapping stigmas and prejudices in the documentation from the people that were documenting it at the time. Like we said last time, it's like firsthand accounts, reporters, critics, journalists, like there's so many people that these stories are filtered through. It's like an oral history, even if it's something slightly contemporary like this, that completely changed the vibe of a person. Like when you're Like, I mean, we talk about this with our interviews where we try not to edit them. We try not to put too much of a slant on what the person is talking about because we're trying to capture that pureness of what the person was really like. When you don't have video recording, when you don't have extensive documentation of that person from their own mouth, that vibe and that energy and that like intensity or gentleness or like intelligence or like 
I don't know, the things that make a person actually a person and that build someone's identity can't be captured if it's a person telling you what someone else told you, what someone else told them. You know what I mean? Hmm. And that's what history is built on. So it's really important to be critical when you read this stuff, even if it is from a quote unquote firsthand source. Yeah. And, complex. I, and I will say too, like some of the sources of people from Andy Warhol's world that said the stuff about Edie and the Bob Dylan stuff, the guys who said that were also degenerates. Yeah. So it's like, I believe them. Like what incentive do they have? You know what I mean? Like those guys like weren't like, Oh, the ones that said that there was an abortion and stuff. Yeah. Like I fucking believe those guys. Like, why would they lie? Why would they lie? They said worse stuff about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, anyway. That's true. But, yeah, that's... I wonder, too, how many of these sources were women. You know what's fucking crazy? Actually... Was it none of them? Now except the sister? I, if I'm, like, thinking really hard. So, every... Every, like, YouTube thing I watched and read about, like, pretty much all of the coverage that I found about Edie were by independent women journalists. What were their sources, though? Like, contemporaries? That's the thing. I was finding, uh, I wrote, see, I wrote the script, like, a month ago now, so I'm kind (laughs) of, like, losing. I'm I'm sorry. I'm, like, really pressing you right now. It's okay. I'm missing some pieces, but a lot of this, so a lot of stuff about Edie Sedgwick's, Sedgwick's life are from Andy Warhol historians uh, and or Bob Dylan people. Yeah. Like people documenting both of those people. Like I even found a, a website dedicated solely to Sedgwick genealogy. Oh, wow. That it seems to be made by somebody in their family. That's cool. And the page on Edie said, Edie was the daughter of blah, 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 blah. She lived in the... And also, it seems that there's a lot of newfound public interest in her. Oh, wow. Like, it was just completely not no information. It was like, she was a daughter of this guy. See, that's she's something, famous. That's something that interests me, too, because when... I don't know. This is more my own personal preferences, I guess, when reading about historical biographies. But something that stuck out to me a lot when you were talking about Edie is that she was being characterized as this like fucked up wayfish girl with like no real friends, like nobody looking out for her or whatever. And like all these guys just wanted to sleep with her and she was known as so broken or whatever. But then it's also mentioned that she has siblings that she was close with. She has a sister who knew her very well and knew intimate details of her romantic relationships. She had friends that were advocating for her. She like, it doesn't seem like it lines up. You're totally right. I'm kind of wondering if this is a fault in my research or a fault in the greater picture of research. It could be a fault in the greater picture because something that um, I would be interested to look up. Maybe we could do it like we could touch on it in another episode just quickly. Edie Sedgwick. She had to. You're right. She had to have a fucking like at least a couple girlfriends. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think something that tends to be a defining. um, I mean, I don't know. Call me out if this is problematic to say, but I think that when somebody, when a woman who is known for aesthetic beauty, especially a straight woman, which it sounds like she was, like a fashion icon, a model, an actress that is known as like, I just think it's strange that all of this documentation comes through her as an accessory to men versus being sourced from women that she knew or colleagues, other models, other actresses, like her sister. 
there were women that knew her that knew the details of her story in a more intimate way than somebody that was researching Bob Dylan or researching Warhol. And I think that maybe because she wasn't that famous at the time in the same way, like wasn't personally famous, was just famous for her work. Maybe those stories didn't get documented because people don't fucking interview women, at least in the time period that she died in. But I think that that's interesting because when you talk about somebody that is like there, we, there are characters like this or people in real life like this that are women that are known for their beauty. They're known for their looks. They have these tragic stories, like addiction stories or whatever. And the missing link in what really it puts them, I think, in a danger zone is when there's no other women in their life because there's nobody cautioning them about the, the things that they're falling into. And it doesn't sound like she was in that demographic, which makes me think that there's more to her story more depth to her story. And I think that that statement, the closing statement from her sister of like, she wasn't a victim. She was just empowered to, I'm paraphrasing, but empowered to destroy herself. That sounds true to me for that reason. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a lot of conjecture on my part, but no, I, I mean, it does. I mean, and, and what else is there, but fucking speculation too, because that's, it's true. Like it kind of reminds me of like, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the fact that like people always say, like when you study history and genealogy, you're going to hit dead ends unless your family were like, like affluent millionaires for multiple generations. Mm. Like if your family was poor, like pretty much, you know, like for example, like I have a great grand, my grand, my great grandfather died, was, was shot during the great depression. Yeah. And uh, he's the only known like entity for like, we know the names of his relatives back then, who is dad, like some information like that, but all stories, photographs, where he fucking, what his fucking address was back then, what school he went to, who his grandparents were, all of that shit's just fucking a mystery. Yeah. It's like, sure. Maybe you could piece it together on like, with a fucking ancestry.com description, I mean, prescription, but it's like, it's just gone. And it's because he was poor. Yeah. And this shit with Edie Sedgwick, despite her family being so rich, her personal story is just as, as largely unrecorded. Though I wonder actually, but, but then you gotta, but then, then there's this question of the tapes that she recorded. Those would be really interesting to look into. Maybe we could do a follow-up episode. Yeah, maybe I should have fucking listened to those instead of <laughs> reading all the stupid shit I was reading. I think you did a lot of really Bob good Dylan research, though. Well, I think... I, I don't know. I think another thing, too, about women's history specifically... I'm really interested in that because what I found... I did a big genealogy, a genealogy project in my family recently, and I found birth records, death records, job records, census records, whatever, for all the men in my family. and mm. was able to trace my mom's dad's family line and my dad's family line. But there's like it, the women in my family are a ghost town. But the people in my family that talk a lot about family are the women. So all the stories that I know, the oral history of my family are about the women in my family and the sacrifices that they made or the things that they did or people they were in love with that they didn't get married to. Like those are the things that are held by other women that die when those women die. You know what I mean? Which is why I think that when you're researching a woman, you have to look for women's sources, like her friends, her mother, her sisters, whatever, because we just, as a society don't document that information unless it's tragic. Right. Yeah. Or like it was some type of crime or like untimely 
death or something. Yeah. Like, there's probably people that are recorded in history because they died on the Titanic. And if they didn't, they would have never been mentioned again. Mm. Ever. You know? Well, how many instances have there been in history of John Smith died and wife? Right. Like, for example, like, I've probably talked about it on the podcast before, but the great-grandfather that I was just talking about, I've, I've like, he's like a white whale of research that I am constantly, like, diving back into. Because mm. it's, like, impossible to find information about him. Yeah. But, um... Like, my ultimate goal in life is to just one day track down a photo of him somehow. Because there's bound to have been some that exist. Anyway, because cameras were readily available at the time. Anyway, but I found out recently, I didn't even know this, but he had, like, three sisters. Yeah. And they're just not fucking... Like, I found one of them. I was like, wow, she has such a unique name. Her name was, like... Um, I was like, wow, a woman named like, like, uh, I don't know. I like, I was so confused because her name, what the fuck was it? It was like, it was Basil Greenleaf. It was Mrs. Basil Greenleaf. That's pretty. And I was like, that's the most interesting name I've ever heard. It's like a fairy name. Why wasn't her last name Huntress? Oh, cause she. It wasn't her fucking name at all. Her husband's name was Basil Greenleaf. Oh. And she's referred to in writings. Mrs. Basil Greenleaf. Right. Wow. She got a cool last name, Greenleaf. His name was Basil. That's kind of cool. His name was Basil Greenleaf. Do you know what her first name was? I, I don't know. Yeah. I think I just found it because it was a, a, a marriage announcement or of some kind. That's the thing. From like the, from like the fucking thirties or forties. Yeah. That's the thing. Like the way that we document history literally erases women especially if their names are changed especially if they get divorced and they have a second last name like if they pop up in historical documentation at all they might be under a name that's untraceable if you don't know that that marriage happened or if she got married and her husband died shortly after and she lived for a while but had a different last name you would never connect that yeah that's my great-grandmother actually she has like fucking four names yeah where um i mean i have like fucking four right names. yeah that's true she was um uh, married three times and I think she only had kids with her first husband or something like that. But so that means her last name switched three times. So I don't know. Anyway. And if you look at it in a different way, like your dad's last name is Huntress. Your last name is Huntress. Your name for the rest of your life will be Brian Huntress. And if you have a son, his last name will be Huntress. My mom's last name is not, I, don't, I mean, I don't say my last name on the podcast usually, but my mom's last name is her maiden name. My last name and my mom's last name are different than that. My It's also different than my dad's last name. And my kids' last names will be something completely unrelated to both of those. And my first name has changed. Yeah. And I've had many addresses throughout my life. I I don't know. It's That's just, true. You know, if it was 200 years from now and times don't change at all. I will be untraceable. Well, you'd at the very least be extremely difficult to research. I'll probably be easier to find under Theodore Earthworms than anything else because of this podcast. That's true. Or not just that, but also your digital footprint of art and stuff. I mean, who knows if that'll survive, though? Digital decay is a thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe that could be said for the podcast, too. But the thing is, the people that will remember me are the people that knew me. And if you were going to ask people right now who the reliable sources of who knew me would be, it would not be people that knew me from my fucking college. Like, guys who wanted to bone me when I was in college. Oh, my God. That's the source. 
That's actually so fucking terrible. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, that's that sucks. And I just find it suspicious, too, that there was no real substance to her flipping out on Andy Warhol and wanting to know if you could delete those videos that made her look like a fool. What did she mean? Was she right? I mean, yeah, probably, because the videos, the movies were ass. That's I not mean, what I mean. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you know what I'm saying? No, like, I, I must have misunderstood. I'm sorry. I'm saying it sounds like she was being made a fool of in the right. time. And it wasn't because she was actually, she actually looked like a fool. It's because that's just the, I mean, she was a, like, I don't know if she was exactly a sex symbol, but she was a fashion icon. I mean, yeah. people associate that with vapidness. And I mean, even we were talking about Kim Kardashian earlier. How many people fucking hate Kim Kardashian for that exact reason? That's true. Most of her comments on Instagram, I'm pretty sure are negative. Yeah. Hmm. Or you could say that about like any like woman celebrity right now. That's true. Yeah. Even, yeah. Hmm. So, I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying that that's because of Andy Warhol or because of her or any failing that she had. I think that this is a larger cultural thing. And I think yeah. this ties into how we view women, women artists, like the legitimacy that we lend to their work, like sexuality. There's like a lot of overlapping things going on here that are much bigger than Edie Sedgwick. But I think it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, you know, taking cue from the YouTube channel I was talking about earlier, Final Girl Studios and other independent journalists and DIY art historians like like her, I wonder if perhaps we could play our part and uh, and you know and kind of counteracting that a little bit by covering stories related to this one. Yeah, you know, because like like contemporary. No, ones? not I mean, sure, contemporary and historical where ed sedgwick is a is is one of countless mm. like i was thinking about this is another script idea i had people always talk about picasso's girlfriends yeah every one of all of the women picasso fucked over yeah like what if we did like a henry the eighth style episode that would be cool that would be cool for my own personal education that would be yeah cool. i'm also kind of wondering if i shouldn't run with this henry the eighth metaphor I kind of love it, but I also feel like it's a little weird. Um, that would be kind of funny, a meme. Like, a, like I can picture the album art, the episode art for that. It's just a picture of Picasso dressed up as Henry VIII. Maybe that's a little far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, not that he was like any, whatever. I mean, I honestly, I feel like I could even know more about Henry the eighth. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've learned a lot about Henry the eighth and if I could simplify it in any way, I would say that he is a serial killer that nobody called a serial killer. So maybe that's a little bit severe for Picasso. Yeah. But not, it's, all, it's like, at least too far for Picasso. <laughs> yeah. No, Henry the eighth is like only if he wasn't a royal mem family member king of England would be remembered as like a fucking vampire serial killer if in my opinion wouldn't they all yeah i mean i mean he was like literally like he was literally like like harvey weinstein fused with joffrey baratheon from game of thrones i mean i think people do remember him that way now right yeah that's true well i guess they must have then too yeah. If we remember them now. Uh, well, yeah, people, yeah. It was documented. 
I think he was the type of king that like you like got in instantly beheaded if you even like glanced the wrong way type deal. Slay. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Ha 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 ha. Um, yeah. And Picasso and there's a documentary that maybe we could watch together that I'm pretty sure covered the exact subject matter that I was just talking about that was focusing on Picasso's romantic endeavors solely. I was going to say, it sounds it sounds familiar, but I think we talked about it too, so I didn't yeah. know if that was a thing. It's funny because I watched it years ago, and I have been trying to find it again recently, and I can't. It used to be on YouTube, and now I can't find it, and I can't <sighs> remember the title. I wonder if I could try to dig it up. Yeah, maybe it's on like JSTOR or something. Mm. I also feel like I, I don't know a lot about Picasso's um, muses, but... I think some of them were artists, weren't they? Yeah, like artists, painters. dancers, models, mm. ballerinas. That's a shame. I don't even know any of their names. I mean, people generally don't. I mean, because like it's just, it's literally the exact same story where, as Andy Warhol, where it's one person who is immensely famous with tons of people that were there at the beginning. Mm. So, and another thing to consider, like. Picasso's story was extremely long where it started, you know, in like fucking 19 fucking tens, like, you know, Paris or some shit yeah. or whenever the fuck that was and goes all the way until he like dies in like 19 fucking 78 or something. Wasn't even more recent than that. I have no idea. I know that he's like a lost generation, like you know, early 1900s guy that lived until colored photos. Do you want to know how long you've been recording? I'm going to Google yeah, this. But, um, Is this another three and a half hour? It's two and a half right now. Two and a half? Yeah. Good. Yeah, we should. At least the most, I feel like the, at the like, what's uh, Picasso's timeline? 1881 to 1973. There you go. I was That's pretty much. I was pretty much on the mark there. 1881. Yeah, he was, his generation is called the lost generation because kind of similar to Iraq, actually, it was like a generation of young people at the turn of a century that were all deployed to a largely pointless bloodbath war. Mm. And then a pandemic also wiped most of them out. So his generation were like these young peoples that were like supposed to be like you know, so much hope and excitement and the new century. And then they were like, you know, just yeah. totally fucked and like just became like these bohemians that just were like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, let's just all get drunk all day and paint. Right on. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to do Picasso soon, actually. Okay. We'll do Picasso. Well, I think time for bed yeah my mouth and throat is so fucking dry because i haven't taken a sip of water in two Me hours too. i'm hungry too we've been talking the entire time you did a phenomenal job with the script oh thank you i just want to say too as a disclaimer we are not historians and they know and fact check every when you go to repeat something you heard here to tell your friend, Google it first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I might have just totally fucked up. Did your neighbor drive into their porch? No, I think they removed that panel so they could park close to their house. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a good idea. Anyway, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I forget some of my sources, but check out the ones that I mentioned. 
thank you, Theo, for listening and for yeah, your wonderful course. commentary. Uh, rest in peace to the to the memory of Edie Sedgwick. And fuck that weird piece of shit that tricked her into selling her publicity rights. <laughs> and also, fuck Bob Dylan. Fucking yeah. dumbass. I mean, like I said, Harry Potter. The Harry <laughs> Potter situation. All right, all right, all right. Anyway, all right, guys. Thank you for listening. We'll talk soon, everybody. Bye-bye. Boston Art Podcast is an independent DIY production by Brian Huntress and Theodora Earthworms. The information contained in this episode represents the views and opinions of the original creators or our guests and does not represent any institution, organization, or business. Find us on Instagram at Boston Art Podcast and tune in for a new episode every Friday. Thank you for listening.